Well, here we are, heading into the final weeks of AP US history. We've seen a lot of action this year in Pushing A from the Civil War to 1974. And today we're going to run from a script. The following two podcasts are going to cover all of American history. It's going to be every period, every chapter, all bundled up into one neat three-hour bundle. Before we get going, this podcast is for me, not for you. This isn't going to give you the critical thinking skills you need for the exam, but we do have one guarantee for you, and it is for a wicked podcast that covers all of American history, or maybe two. This is Pushing the A. Let's do this. Starting with period one. The roots of American society began 5,000 BCE in the continent of North America when gatherers in Highland Mexico turned wild grass into corn, which led to civilization, pueblos, villages, mound builders in Mississippi and Ohio, settlements, and other good things, because when you can feed people, society tends to happen, which you see in around 1,000 CE, when maize, also known as corn, hits the eastern seaboard, leading to a population boom in the beginning of the Triple C Indian tribes, the Creek, Choctaw, and Cherokees. Meanwhile, five centuries later in the 1500s across the Atlantic, the Spanish have united under Ferdinand and Isabella and have gotten really excited about expelling the Moors. In the meantime, the Portuguese have reached India and Africa, getting access to gold and beginning the intercontinental trade of African slaves, which will be necessary soon because Europe's Renaissance and post-Crusade obsession with Asia and Africa, as well as Spain's newfound wealth, leads to Columbus trying to find a cheaper way to Asia, specifically India, and then to him accidentally landing the Bahamas, specifically Hispaniola, where he makes the stupidest decision in the world by naming the natives Indians. The Indies quickly turn into plantations worked by African slaves and native slaves with this interaction, Europe bringing stuff like horses, sugar, and deadly diseases, turning into what will later be called the Columbia Exchange. Um, in the meantime, the exchange of New World goods began with things like tobacco and potatoes feeding and addicting the Old World. Native Americans plummet in population due to the disease. Uh, this is the beginnings, as I said, of the Colombian Exchange, also known as Triangle Trade. 
Europe, which is high on gold and tobacco, began the encomienda system. Bartolomeu de las Casas was an outspoken enemy of it, which basically gave native slaves to colonists in exchange for Christianizing them. The Treaty of Torcedillas was signed, which gave Spain more of the New World, but Portugal got the rights to Africa, Asia, and Brazil. Hernán Cortés claimed Tenochtitlan, Tenochtitlan in Mexico and the Aztec Kingdom for Spain, turning it into Mexico to set uh, back on Noche Triste. Pizarro did similar things in Peru with the Incans, as did many Spaniards who were angsty and needed a war to fight. The Spanish settled at St. Augustine in what is now Florida and rooted the routed, the native population in New Mexico at the Battle of the Acoma in 1599, where they brutally mutilated and killed natives. In 1610, 1610, in 1610 they established Santa Fe. The British and the French sent out some cursory expeditions uh, as well, but they didn't really yield anything except for France inducing some anxiety for the Spanish. Meanwhile, in New Mexico, conversion was going well for the Spanish with their Roman Catholic missions, and then it stopped going well as the natives rebelled. In Pope's Rebellion in, 18, in 1680, they destroyed the Catholic Church, killed the Spanish and their priests, and retook the land for their own religion, and it took a half century for the Spanish to regain the land. Overall, the Spanish had hundreds of cities in the New World for about a half century of expansion, with hundreds of thousands of colonists controlling millions of natives. Cathedrals, the printing press, the universities, and those other good things came into play later on. Let's talk about the Spanish, who were really concerned with the French. Um, they were pushed out of New Mexico after Pope's rebellion, so they settled Texas in 1716 to protect refugees from the rebellion. They were concerned with California, um, but the first missions and Christianizations of Indians in the major cities of the area began in the late 1760s. That, believe it or not, guys, is chapter one. Okay. Um, chapter two, moving towards England. Um... I never really learned where England is. I don't know European geography, but the Protestant Reformation put Queen Elizabeth on a throne. Spain and, England's, Spain and England were rivals to control all of Europe, um, and that manifested itself in a Spanish-English war in sea dogs, plundering and destroying the Spanish invincible armada of Philip II, ending all of Spain's imperial dreams. England was unified and pumped up, and they signed a treaty in 1604 with Spain that allowed them to begin colonizing in the New World. England was also in the midst of a population boom at the time, um, and something about primogeniture happened with landlords and sheep, and Puritans were disproportionately affected as were poor farmers, leading to a bunch of angry Puritans, hell hath no fury, such as angry Puritans, and a bunch of beggars. In the meantime, the Joint Stock Company was created for expeditions, um, all that combined to allow settlers to go west and settle. The Virginia Company of London got a charter from King James I, and they went in and settled in Virginia for the gold, bad decision, um, with the rights of Englishmen guaranteed. In 1606, they went towards Jamestown, which was officially established in 1607. Many of them died en route or as soon as they got there because conditions were horrible. Most settlers, once they were there, focused on gold and not food. Everyone was dying. No one knew what they were doing. In 1608, John Smith took over the colony with the policy of don't work, don't eat. Um, nearly Everybody still died in the winter of 1609 to 1610, so later that spring, Lord de la Warre took over and installed a military regime, declaring war on the native population. Tensions had already exploded in the Anglo-Powhatan War in 1610, which ended in a peace settlement that lasted until 1622, when the Powhatan struck back, and then in 1644, the Second Anglo-Powhatan War occurred, which led to a huge loss for the Powhatans, um, 
with the 1646 peace treaty that really hurt them. They were victims of the three Ds, disease, disorganization, and disposability, and they had land that the colonists wanted, so that was that. By 1685, they were completely extinct or moved out to the plains, and many other tribes suffered similar fates um, due to firearms, horses, diseased, alcohol, and forced migration. The Algonquins managed to hold control of the Great Lakes, and Midwestern natives held strong for the time being. In 1612, tobacco was first planted in Virginia, which led to a boom in which food was imported as tobacco was the only crop planted. People were needing more and more land for tobacco and went west for it as the soil was ruined. The plantation and slavery systems expanded with the Dutch warship selling the first slaves to Jamestown in 1619. Um, in the meantime, Virginia, quick to decide that black people did not need representation, formed a government. The House of Burgesses, which was a small mini-parliament, pissing off King James enough uh, about the house and tobacco, um, to revoke the charter of the colony in 1634. Later on, Lord Baltimore, who was looking for a Catholic haven, founded Maryland, the majority of which went to his Catholic relatives, uh, in large proportions of land. There were a lot of Protestant indentured servants, um, and they got very angry, and they rebelled, taking away the property rights of the Baltimore family, meaning that Baltimore said, uh, this is still for Catholics only, sorry, and then the process got ang more angry, threatened to overtake the Catholics, and so the Act of Toleration stated that all Christianity is okay, though Maryland remained Catholic for the most part. In the West Indies, Spain had let England colonize a load of sugar-based islands, including Jamaica, which required more, more labor, which came from African slaves that rapidly outnumbered the whites on the island. To keep the slaves in line, the Barbados Slave Code was established, which revoked nearly all basic rights from those slaves. Sugar dominated the islands really quickly, and sugar barons forced English farmers to move to the mainland uh, in the south of North America, bringing the slave code with them, specifically to South Carolina, which you'll hear about later. After the English Civil War, Charles II restarted colonization and established Carolina in 1670. They mainly made foodstuffs for the Indies, which led to a lot of rice and a lot of labor, which was required for which slaves were required for. They were brutally mistreated, but soon became the majority of the state. Carolinians also brutally slaughtered the Savannah tribe, but they had a nice capital city of Charleston. North Carolina, which was a bunch of rebellious squatters in Virginia, split up with Carolina and got their own charter and were very independent, and they were also very terrible to the Indians, like when they sided with South Carolina in the Tuscarora War that enslaved a ton of natives. Very few natives remained in that part of the South. With the Spanish in Florida and the French sort of having a claim to the Louisiana Territory, England countered um, with a buffer between South Carolina and Florida, Georgia, which was a haven for debt prisoners without slavery, James Oglethorpe founded it. Everyone but Catholics were welcome, and the Methodist Church was founded there. Okay, that's chapter two, only 39 to go. Uh, into chapter three, uh, let's look north. As Jamestown is happening, the Protestant Reformation is in full spoing, so the Church of England splits from the Catholic Church, so the Puritans are born in the Woolen districts of England. Uh, an extreme faction of separatists angered King James I enough to get kicked out of England to go to Holland, which they thought was too scandalous for their children, so about half of them got a charter with the Virginia Company to go meet up with everyone in Jamestown and hopped aboard the Mayflower, and then they missed their target brutally and landed in Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. The colonizers signed the Mayflower. It says contract here. I'm pretty sure it's the Mayflower Compact. It is the Mayflower Compact. Um which essentially stated that they would form a government submitting to the will of the majority. Moderate Puritans stuck around England until around 1629, when Charles I dissolved Parliament, prompting them to dissolve, to form the Massachusetts Bay Company with a royal charter, uh, founding Massachusetts with Boston as the prime hub. 
as about 2,000 immigrants came in in 1630. Conditions in Plymouth Rock were atrocious, as almost half of the settlers died immediately, um, and Miles Standice and William Bradford and Thanksgiving and Squanto and food happened. In 1691, that colony merged with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and the whole thing was very educated and prosperous, led, led, led by John Withrop, Winthrop, the governor of the adult period male voting government. It wasn't democracy, but it was close as they used town halls that really enforced God's laws. Uh, clergy couldn't hold office, and nobody could have an even or kiss thanks to the state's absurd hyperperiodism. People like Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams took the religious extremism to its logical extremes. Both got banished. Williams went on to found Rhode Island of the Baptist Church in 1636, declaring complete religious freedom, taxation, Quaker tolerance, and mandate suffrage. Hutchinson died in the woods. In 1635, the Connecticut River attracted enough settlers to lead to the establishment of Hartford, and in 1638, the Reverend Thomas Tucker founded New Haven on the basis of the Fundamental Orders, a constitution with a regime run by substantial citizens. It angered Charles II enough to merge New Hampshire and the Democratic settlements in the Valley in 1662. Puritan-Indian relations were not great. Uh, the local New England population had already been decimated, but the Wampanoag were nice to the settlers signing a treaty on Thanksgiving in 1621, but the Pequots and the English fought in 1637, which ended in the decimation of the Pequots. Pequots. Medicom, also known as King Philip, started the Pan-Indian Alliance in 1675. They attacked a load of Puritan towns next year, killing hundreds of people. Medicom was beheaded, but the colonizers did slow their westward movement as the Indians lost more and more people. Due to a lack of resources and the need for defense against the Indians, uh, the French and the Dutch, the New England Confederation was formed in 1643, uniting the Puritan colonies of Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, New Hampshire, and the Valley Settlements. They all got two votes. Charles II eventually noticed and revoked Massachusetts' charter in 1684, um, trying to make the colonies more loyalist and putting out these rules on them, and then the colonists ignored all the rules, prompting Charles to award charters to Rhode Island and Connecticut as a punishment. In 1686, England established the Dominion of New England, which included New York and New Jersey by 1688. Um, this was like the the expansion of the New England Confederation into Puritan, uh, or into uh, British, into British um, government. That's a part that wasn't written. Um, they added protection and efficiency in navigation laws that forced America to trade only with the British Empire, which looked at smuggling, and Edmund Andros, who was the new enforcer of these laws in the New England Dominion, lost his seat as a governor and had to cross-dress to escape a mob after the Glorious Revolution and the collapse of the New England Dominion. Massachusetts got started back in 1691 with male suffrage, and London stopped caring. Um, this is called salutary neglect. Maryland and New York tried to do the same thing, but they failed. Meanwhile, the 17th century had been somewhat of a golden age for the Netherlands, who had won a slew of wars and began colonizing with the Dutch East India Company. Henry Hudson had explored the Delaware and the New York Bay, establishing trade bases and planting New Netherlands in 1623, which was New York. Um, and they bought Manhattan for almost nothing. It was super autocratic, but New Amsterdam, i.e. New York City, was a really cool, interesting place. And everyone who invested was happy, but Manhattan was very profit centric um and extremely autocratic they built a wall to keep native americans out i.e wall street um and quakers and other religious dissenters were treated really horribly um so new englanders and new amsterdamers didn't get along too well in delaware the swedes had established new sweden which the dutch took over but they still lived in the shadow of new england so the british then charles ii gave heir to the duke of york so the british then took um new netherlands uh establishing new york um, the Netherlands said, okay, sure, fine. The balance of power is super imbalanced, 
in the whole area north of Delaware, the Quakers wanted their own land after refusing to serve in the military or pay taxes. So William Penn took the initiative, cashing in a debt owed to his father by the British government. Um, in exchange for Pennsylvania, a fertile, well-advertised state with the central city of Philadelphia. The Indians were well-treated, the government was liberal and democratic, and everyone was welcome, and the opportunity was great economically, and the colony was growing rapidly. It did have the blue laws that punished ungodly revelers, uh, Penn included, who died in the debtor's prison. New Jersey, Quakers expanded and established a new colony in 1664, and then expanded to East New Jersey later. The two colonies merged in 1702. Um, those last few colonies, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, etc., etc., are middle colonies which are fertile grain economies that are between the extremes of the South and North in agriculture and industry and in terms of ethnic and religious diversity. And the country's extremely, not, it's not a country, but the colonies are sort of doing well for themselves and really making things work. And they're sort of wondering, can we do this on our own? That, in 17 minutes, is the end of period one. All right, moving into period two here, which starts with chapter four. It's pretty quick. It starts out talking about foreign groups. So in Pennsylvania, you have the Germans, and in the Old West, you have Scots and Irishmen. Um, all of these people were fleeing religious prosecution and conflict, or they were trying to find a better economic status. The Scots and the Irish developed a really bad reputation for being anti-government. Uh, the Paxton Boys led an armed march on Philadelphia in 1764, decisively anti-Indian, didn't really help the rep of the Scottish and the Irish. The country was a pretty mixed group ethnically without much of a national identity. In North Carolina, the regulator movement uh, attempted to keep Europe out of American affairs. For other immigrants, it was sort of a less pretty situation. Other immigrants being slaves, slavery got huge in the Deep South. New slaves were needed for the tobacco colonies, leading to a skyrocketing enslaved population. Um, but this did have one positive effect, and that is the beginning of African-American culture. Um, it also led to some slave revolts. There was one in New York that killed nine whites and 21 blacks, and the Stoner Revolt in South Carolina led to more race laws. The colonies were pretty equal in terms of getting yourself up to the higher lunches of society, um, but slaves couldn't ascend the system and indentured servants were kind of in the same boat, but also not at all. Um, you're also seeing the beginning of the first elite classes and lower classes in the country. You could really see the disproportionality of it all in the South, uh, where younger children didn't get land or money. It's a dream, folks. The colonies were an agricultural society. Uh, they placed a premium on fishing and farming, then logging came in second, and manufacturing came in third, which led to a high standard of life and triangular trade that sent distilled goods to Europe for slaves. Uh, the slaves were sent for the raw materials for the distilled goods to be produced in America. This oversaturated the British market, so colonies ended up looking elsewhere. Um, but then, to prevent them from doing that, Parliament passed the Molasses Act in 1733, which prevented the U.S. from trading with France, the other big name in the intercontinental trade game. Ah, LaCroix. Um, American transport, let's talk about that for a moment. It was really bad because the roads were bad, so information took ages to get around. The nation really relied on its waterways, um, so populations relied on rivers, and then a postal system sprung up in the early 1700s. It was religiously a mainly congregationalist Anglican Presbyterian and Lutheran country, um, Congregationalists and Anglican leading the way. Anglicans were pretty progressive, and religious toleration was overall on the rise. 
This changed when churches began to struggle, and John Edwards and George Whitefield gave really angry, God-fearing sermons that involved money. It was a doctrine called Arminianism. Um, the old lights, the old clergy were really skeptical of the new lights, the new clergy, but everyone really liked sort of the free will theatrics of the Great Awakening, the first mass movement in American history that really got Americans a lot more religious. Educationally, schools were really only for the wealthy, and they focused on biblical and Puritan studies, um, and especially the first colleges in New England, which were mainly created for the point of convenience. If you needed a real education, you went to England, so the best artists went there, um, and cultural life in America was dominated by the old world. Ben Franklin was the first great American author, but nobody could buy books at the time because they were absurdly expensive um, until the printing press came around and the printed word got a huge boost. The Zanger trial uh, put it to a test when Andrew Hamilton defended a newspaper man for libel against the government and the jury surprisingly sided with him against the orders of the judges in England, um, or the English judges. So in terms of government structures, there were 13 colonies, eight of them had a royal government, um, which meant like the royal government, the royals in England technically had control, which was a problem because sort of you had pulling at both ends. And three proprietaries, so those are brand new states, just ran run by brand new people, and two with elected representation. Most of the colonies had a two house body. The upper house was elected by the crown or the population, and the lower was completely citizen elected. Local governments were really different, and overall it was pretty difficult to vote. Food was boring, life was boring, life was cold, and it was dirty, so people passed the time with drinking and quilting and playing cards and enjoying some good old newfound religious freedom. Into chapter 5 here, let's talk about tobacco. Tobacco is super prevalent in the Chesapeake colonies. Um, both of the colonies were producing for themselves, but as tobacco was on the rise, it destroyed a bunch of soil, so people were moving further and further west to plant more tobacco. People needed more labor to cultivate more of the plants, so the hydrate system incentivized landowners to pay for a laborer's passage in exchange for 50 acres, which built a land-wealthy upper class. These laborers were typically single white men, and they had nothing going for them, so Nathaniel Bacon, a planter, led thousands in a Virginia rebellion, Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. Um, it was mainly about Indians. Uh, they killed tons of Native Americans. They ousted the governor of Virginia, William Berkeley. Um, when Bacon died, the rebellion ended, but also indentured servitude was on the way out uh, because people realized that they could fight back and African slaves were the new source of labor. The Royal African Slave Company lost its monopoly in 1698. So Rhode Island stepped in and they led the charge on slave immigration as a boom in black Southern population took place and systematic racism began as the line between servant and slave really grew clearer. Ultimately, Europe's desire for sugar and tobacco and cotton was reason enough for about 2 million deaths on the Middle Passage to the Caribbean and the Deep South. In 1662, Virginia passed a slave code stating that slaves could neither be educated nor freed the international trade of slaves was not banned until 1808. In New England, things were a little bit better if you were white. Everyone lived in small towns with, pardon me, <coughs> which were often chartered by new proprietors every few years, and nearly everyone attended their local Puritan congressional churches, which were typically democratic. The water was clean, the temperature was cool, people lived for a long time, had a lot of kids, they married early, 
Arisen has much of a class divide. Families were stable with less deaths and grandparents, but also worse property rights for women than in the South. Um, there weren't fewer grandparents. There were, there were actual there were grandparents. Divorce was a really rare thing, um, and women ran the household and sometimes its finances, and they concerned themselves with raising sons that would be a productive addition to society. It was a concept known as Republican motherhood. When business left the home, women mainly stayed there, but they did protest in the Great Awakening and gradually gained some land. As the populations of these towns went up, the Puritans dispersed, meaning that religiousness on the whole went down. So... This led to the Jeremiad, which was a super extreme version of Christianity, um, to sort of respond to the lack of religiousness. Convergence went down, so then the halfway covenant was installed, which allowed people to be partial members, partial members of the church. Women snapped up that opportunity in mass, joining in large numbers, um, and distinction between members sort of decreased. Um, in 1692, a step back for what happened when a group of adolescent girls claimed that they were bewitched, leading to a witch hunt that killed 30 and more, more women. Um, they were mainly market economy workers being accused by farmland workers. It ended in 1693 when the governor's wife was accused of um, being a witch. Overall, because the rocky terrain of New England was partially unworkable, the area had no stable crop. This is completely different, but the livestock was the prominent crop of the area, and people were very frugal and created a really diverse economy. The combination of climate and soil and all-day season-based work and Calvinism led New Englanders to really believe that they were the chosen people, um, and then they cut the forest, changed the climate, and lost some of their self-pride. It wasn't aristocratic, it wasn't hyper-poor, um, it did emulate sort of their old-world societies, but democracy was sort of being held off. Leisler's Rebellion was sort of one of the signs that things weren't going well when in New York City you sort of see landlords and merchants fighting, um, but white people generally did not have many class tensions. Okay, that is chapter five, if you can believe it. Chapter six is the last chapter in period two, which is exciting, so let's get into that. The French got really stupidly powerful under Louis Fourteenth, and when the Boy, am I going to screw this up? The Edict of Nantes? Of Nantes? Who knows? Passed in 1598, which tolerated Protestantism. The French began colonizing and settling in Quebec in 1608. Um, Quebec took a long time to grow, and it was aristocratic because the French were mainly paying attention to their other Caribbean settlements. But a lot of beavers led the French to employ Indians to capture more pelts, which was a trade that exploded in Montreal and killed a bunch of Indians because they wouldn't convert to Catholicism. The French then explored the Midwest so that the English wouldn't get it first, so there were some tensions between the British and the French colonists and trappers. Um, as a function of King William and Queen Anne's wars, guerrilla warfare that got Spain involved, and some other things the British got in Nova Scotia for a short while, and then Spain got to trade with America. There was also the War of Jenkins' Ear, which merged with the Austrian War to become King George's War. After that war concluded, everyone's got really focused on Ohio for some godforsaken reason. Um, France needed it so they could connect it to their southern settlements in Canada, and England really wanted it for expansion. British colonists wanted the area also, so speculators, i.e. George Washington, got the legal rights to the land um, where France was already building forts. In 1754, Virginia sent Washington and some friends out that way. They encountered some French, endured some casualties. The French leader was killed, George Washington lost his command, and some French Acadians were sent to Canada from the Louisiana area to prevent any revolt. 
The whole thing spiraled into the French-Indian War in 1754, which very quickly became the Seven Years' War. Well, it took seven years, um, pitting the British, the, the British, the Brits and the Prussians against the French, Spanish, Austrians, and Russians. The French were mainly allocating their resources in Germany, so in America, where there was sort of a sense of colonial unity, the First Intercontinental Congress met in 1754 in Albany, where they proposed that to best fight the war, they would need to take on some home rule, so London says, no, that's too much, and the colonies were like, wait, that's not enough. Nothing happened. Um, to fight the war in America, the British sent General Edward Braddock, who was a European expert that led the British regulars in their helping of the colonial militiamen. The British endured huge losses as the Indians took a wider path. Uh, they were on the side of the French, and they decimated Braddock's forces from the flank. Um, the British also tried and failed to invade Canada. William Pitt, the great commander, focused on Quebec and Montreal, and eventually took a corps of young leaders with him and overtook Louisburg, Louisburg, who knows. James Wolfe eventually got the British into Quebec at the Battle of Quebec in 1759. Montreal fell later, and the Paris Treaty forced the French to leave North America and gave the British Florida in exchange for some sugar islands going to France, and Cuba and Louisiana went to Spain. Great Britain was officially the great and only North American power. So what did this mean for the colonies? The British no longer seemed invincible, um, and they were the only major power left in the area, um, with no French, Spanish, and far fewer Indians who were well worse off because they couldn't beat Europe against itself anymore, uh, and they could only negotiate with the British. Um, the problematicness of that being seen in Pontiac's uprising, which was a last-ditch effort to get the British of Ohio, um, they took Detroit from the colonizers. The British handed out blankets with smallpox in them. The British found their Indian stability. It came at a really terrible cost. Um, but there was also some tension uh, that came up between the Brits and the Americans. Um, and it was sort of a question of, are the Americans supporting the Brits enough? Um, the Brits said no, so they cut off New England from the middle colonies. Um, so colonial disunity... Um, was up, as was the unity between the colonies and England. Um, and then when the British kept troops in the Midwest, they asked the colonists uh, to pay for stability and what they had done to the Indians in the name of the colonists with a proclamation of 1763 saying that colonists can't settle past the Appalachians until the British could fix their sort of crappy relations with the Indians. It was a fair proclamation, but the randomness of it angered Americans, so... Everyone defied the proclamation, everyone piled the wagons and moved west, and they felt really great about themselves, and they were pissed off with the overconfident British, and nothing was going to go wrong at all. There was going to be no conflict. That is period two. If my phone would let this turn off. Okay, it'll let it turn off. Storming into period three here. So, the New World, for the most part, had changed how people think. Thought. Republicanism had spread throughout the country, and it was this idea that government shouldn't have hierarchy or be authoritarian, but it should instead work for the common good and depend on virtues. Radical Whigs in England believed that monarchies posed a threat to that ideology. Um, the British were still using the tragedy of mercantilism to justify control over America and tried to grab more control of the 1656 navigation laws to stop the Dutch from getting into American trade forcing America to send everything through Britain, and they took a cut in the goods, meaning that colonists and tenants didn't really work for themselves. Colonies low on money printed their own money and angered the British enough that they gave themselves the ability to veto anything done in the colonies. Um, 
Before the year 1763, the navigation laws were loosely enforced, and the colonies smuggled around them and also enjoyed British protection and a monopoly in British business. But once the British were in debt from the French and Indian War, they changed their colonial relationship with America. Their new prime minister led the way, enforcing the Navigation Act, passing the 1764 Sugar Act that taxed sugar, and the 1765 Quartering Act that provided that the colonies could put up and would put up British troops in any scenario, as well as the Stamp Act, a tax on the official stamp for any publication, angering the living daylights of colonists who defied both acts vigorously. Many of the fires went to admiralty courts, where rights didn't apply, leading to more suspicion and rallying cries of taxation without representation. The British could legislate, but not if they wanted to tax. In 1765, the Stamp Act Congress convened in New York City with 27 delegates from nine colonies. They drafted a statement that went completely ignored by the British, which led to a non-importation agreement of British goods and violence from the sons and daughters of liberty. The infrastructure for tax collection imploded, meaning that the stamps couldn't be sold, affecting Britain adversely, swaying the opinion of the British public towards repealing the act, and leading to Parliament eventually repealing it themselves. In 1766, Parliament passed a declaratory act saying that they still had unchecked authority over the colonies, but they just chose not to use it. In 1767, Charles Townsend, the head of Parliament, put a duty on home goods such as tea, which pissed off Americans enough and got the New York State Legislature suspended for not complying, in addition to leading to the revival of the Non-Importation Acts, which were less effective that time around. The British brought troops to Boston in 1768, who clashed with colonists in the Boston Massacre of 1770. Um, this was mainly uh, a function of sort of rising American and British tensions over things like the Quartering Act and things like the Stamp Act um, and things from the Seven Years' War where just the two sides didn't like each other anymore and it didn't take a ton to get one ready to fight the other. Um, in the meantime, King George II tried to assert his power, so he surrounded himself with the Yesmen and spent a ton of money, which led to some economic problems for Great Britain, so they repealed all of the Townsend Acts minus T and began over-enforcing the Navigation Acts. The colonies began showing some signs of unity, so Samuel Adams led the way by establishing committees of correspondence in 1772 between towns. They exchanged letters fomenting opposition. It became an intercolonial correspondence committee in 1773, which had the effect of turning into the Continental Congress later of creating a group of a place where a group of Americans can meet and discuss legislation. Um, because tea was cheap, people still paid the tax on it from the Townsend Acts, but then when Britain tried to manipulate the U.S. into purchasing a bunch of tea off the British East India Company, people got angry and defied the tax, preventing ships from Boston, ships in Boston from reaching shore and protesting by making the whole town smell like chamomile. This made Britain really worried, and they started exerting more control over America with a series of acts in 1774 specifically targeting Boston and Massachusetts. These were also known as the intolerable acts. They removed rights to trial or non-quartering rights, stuff like that. To piss off the U.S. further, they passed the Quebec Act, which meant that new British citizens in Canada got rights and land, which really pissed off Americans. All the colonies banded together around Massachusetts, which led to the first true meeting of the Continental Congress in 1774. John Adams made it very clear America, America would not accept home rule, but instead needed to be completely free. Pardon me. The association was created, which was a group that made it easier to boycott British goods. 
When Congress came out with a Declaration of Rights and Parliament rejected it, the colonies began military drills and prepared for a clash. That clash came shortly as Britain sent troops to Lexington and Concord to disperse the Minutemen that were trained there. Shots were fired, eight Americans died in what's known as the Lexington Massacre. A fight broke out as Minutemen forced the British back as they attempted to march onto Boston from Concord, leading to 300 casualties, 70 deaths. The war is about to start. The British have numbers and money and better supplies, but more conflicts pulling them apart. The colonizers had spirit and home field and not much else, and they spent a poorly organized winter at Valley Forge with female camp organizers behind their unreliable Minutemen. That is chapter 7, on to chapter 8. After this one, believe it or not, this is one-fifth of American history. After fighting in Lexington and Concord, all the colonies gathered in Philadelphia in May 1775 to create an army and a navy. George Washington ran it to provide some southern mountains to a mainly northern institution. Everything was speeding up towards war. Edward Allen and Benedict Arnold captured the British at Ticonderoga. Um... In June 1775, one sec, let me just check to make sure. Yeah, see, this is this is what I this is what I thought. Ticonderoga did not happen before the before the Revolutionary War. It happened later. Um, in June 1775, the colonists captured Bunker Hill before running out of supplies. Um, they sent the Olive Branch Petition that July, saying that they were happy to remain loyal but needed to be free. It was too late for King George. He declared America in a state of rebellion and brought in Hessians to fight in his army. In October 1775, the British burned Portland, Maine, leading to rebels invading Canada, capturing Montreal, and attempting to take all of Quebec before being driven out. The colonies still hadn't marked down a win. Most people thought a war was going to be about a return to the status quo, where the United States wasn't unjustly taxed, but it was still a colony. Thomas Paine came from England, though, and wrote a pamphlet that was anti-King George and pro-self-government, and he begged the question, why should a smaller body control a, large, a larger one? So everyone wanted a full level of independence with a democratic government, no monarch, virtue-reliant. In June 1776, Richard Henry Lee filed a motion in the Continental Congress that the colonies were, in fact, independent states. It was adopted on July 2nd, and the Declaration of Independence was approved on July 4th, 1776, based on natural rights and the need for a formal breaking of ties with the British government. Many Americans wanted to remain a part of Great Britain. These were typically older, conservative, and wealthier and Anglican. They saw themselves as better people against lawless hordes. Um, some of these people were Seven Years' War veterans. Other people liked the Union Jack because when you were under it, it was tolerant. Um, you were, you had tolerance, uh, and others were Native Americans hoping to hold on to treaties they had signed with the British. Many of these people left to fight for the Brits, and when the war was over, were in a state of disgrace. More, however, fled beyond British lines if they, if they were loyalists. Um, the Loyalist versus Patriot fight played itself out in the civilian venue as the Patriots won in earning the support of civilians, going person to person, convincing them to join the cause. Around this point, the British only really had areas where they had large military presences. In July 1776, the British attacked New York, beating the U.S. at Long Island, prompting an escape through Manhattan to New Jersey to Delaware. William Howe had the opportunity to end the fight there, but he instead waited out, Howe being the British general, and allowed Washington to recross the Delaware. He captured, Washington captured 7,000 Hessians at Trenton, got a win at Princeton, so then the British made the strategic decision of capturing the Hudson to cut off New England from the rest of the country. They send General Bourgeoin from Bourgeoin, 
Canada and decided that they would send Howe from New York if it was necessary. Benedict Arnold held off the British until winter, um, and Howe was too slow to help Bergeron in Philadelphia, so George Washington headed to Valley Forge for the winter, where Baron von Steuben drilled the living crap out of the American army. Bergeron headed to North Albany, where he was surrounded, trapped, and forced to give up command. Suddenly, the colonial cause had legitimacy, and France, hoping for revenge for the Seven Years' War, reversed their position of neutrality, joining the U.S. cause in large part due to the Ben Franklin playing their fear of reconciliation with Britain. The Jews signed a model treaty stating that the U.S. could have a commercial relation with France if it became independent. Um, so Parliament said, hey, um, never mind, you can actually have home rule. Um, but France joined it on a military basis in 1778 with the Spanish and Dutch at their side. In 1780, Catherine the Great stated that Russia would engage in armed neutrality against the British. The British were outstretched and outnumbered, so they left Philadelphia and concentrated everything in New York and in the South, trying to work their way north, beginning a war in the Carolinas. The U.S. was in a good position, but they couldn't trust their generals because Benedict Arnold sold out and gave away secrets to the Brits. The U.S. still won in the Carolinas with Nathaniel Green at the helm. In the meantime, the British were paying Indians to attack colonists, forcing the Iroquois into signing the Treaty of Fort Stanwix. The United States also sort of, kind of, maybe a little bit, not really sure, um, had a navy. At this point, neither side was really interested in fighting the war further um, because the United States was low on morale and high in inflation, and the British wanted their market of the U.S. back. General Cornwallis fell into a trap at Yorktown. The French and Washington's army converged. They went on land, blockaded the sea, and the British surrendered in October 1781. And the Whig Party in power in England came to a surrender with favorable terms for the U.S. So Adams, Franklin, Jay, and company went to Paris to talk to the Spaniards, the French, and the British. The U.S. went behind everyone's back to talk to the British directly. They created an alliance and a super favorable treaty in the Treaty of Paris in 1783. The French didn't have to deal with angry Spaniards, and everyone remained bankrupt. That is chapter 8. Alright, on to chapter 9. So, the United States was independent, but there was no conservative counterbalance to the super-liberal thought at the time, um, which was a problem given that not everyone was super-liberal. Most states had pretty similar governments with their own constitutions, based on government by and for the people with annual elections, legislative branch overpowered everything else. Um, the formerly disenfranchised um, white people moved all the capitals from big cities to inland cities. It's just a thing that happened. The economy after the war was mainly similar to it before the war, but the states got better land, they divvied up the former land of the loyalists, and non-importation agreements were gone, though Britain was buying a whole lot less from America, who returned to their agricultural roots, accepting a really small group of people who gained the system and became the country's first tax-hate and upper class. At the Second Continental Congress, um... The one second, my thing broke, okay. The Articles of Confederation were approved and they were ratified in 1781 as everyone came to the agreement that the old Northwest wouldn't become new states or, or would become new states instead of going to current states. The AOCs made treaties really difficult, didn't provide for an army, left the executive and judicial branches super weak, and was really changeable if none of the states agreed to it. It included the land ordinance, um, this is the part about states, which sold off the old Northwest to the federal government to pay the national debt and provided a path to statehood for the new territories. Um, again, diplomacy was difficult, uh, especially given that the United States was kind of in a conflict in North Africa, and John Jay was wondering should the United States make some sort of change. 
Taxes weren't federally mandated, and the states, because they were all in high debt, were left to their own finances. Um, the lower-rung veteran farmers, for instance, were really getting screwed over, and they were losing their farms on mortgages. So this is Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, where the United States raised a militia, or a group of militias, until debt relief was passed, convincing everyone that they needed a stronger document providing for a standing army, which the Articles of Confederation did not. So Congress then called two conventions, one in Annapolis in 1786, and a constitutional convention in 1789 to fix uh, commerce and the articles, with delegates such as Franklin and Madison and Hamilton all hanging out in Philadelphia. Virginia presented a plan where the states would be represented by population, the big state plan, and New Jersey presented the small state plan with equal representation, beginning the Great Compromise that created the House and the Senate under a short, non-specific document based on common law that gave the executive a little more power than it used to have. Everything was indirect, judicial appointments were lifelong, everything was based on the consent of the governed, and breaching the limits of power was very difficult, you had checks and balances. No one was really happy because it was a little more conservative than the move of the time. Um, conservative and liberal are weird terms for the period. It was a little less, it was a little more centralized um, than the move of the time, but it was good enough to be signed into law at the convention. The document was ratified in a loophole, as only nine of 13 states had to approve the document for it to take effect per the Articles of Confederation. Anti-Federalists like Adams were really worried about states' rights, debt, and the power of the people, but the Federalists like Franklin and Washington pushed well enough for a large central government. Jackson balances, though, and specific rights were the backbone of the ratification as the promised Bill of Rights um, came nearly immediately after the document went into effect. I don't know if I said this, but they promised a Bill of Rights to go with the Constitution. Um, James Madison and Federalist Number 10 argued really dramatically and concisely for the document of the Constitution, and the conservative minority of the country convinced North Carolina and Rhode Island to jump on in, and the document was enshrined in American legality? Legal things? Who knows what I'm saying. Alright. So... Many good things came from the Constitution. The claim for equality for all uh, had some backing, so inheritance laws were outlawed, the church got a lot more liberal with religious freedom statutes in Virginia, um, but they were still indentured. Well, indentured to between die, but slavery was increasing in prominence. The country had the opportunity to debate it, but sat it out because they decided that the debate would hurt the Union. Women couldn't vote, um, so people were like, okay, well, at least they can raise their sons to be moral. This is Republican motherhood. We see this a few more times, like in sort of the mid-early 1800s, um, where women see an increased status. This is it's more prominent then. The country was really heading into a great unknown at the time, um, and the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists were the two forces pulling at the sides. The population was increasing, the country was rural, and new states were being added on the year. George Washington was the uh, the first and only unanimously elected president in 1789. Jefferson was the Secretary of State, Hamilton of the Treasury, and Knox the Secretary of War. That is Chapter 9. Alright, into Chapter 10 here. The Constitution was real and created, but anti-federalists were really concerned with individual rights, so some states ratified the document with the condition of a Bill of Rights, which will come into play with two-thirds of a congressional vote. Madison went to Congress and wrote a boatload of amendments. The first ten were the Bill of Rights. You know, the first, the second, the third. You can count freedoms of press to bear arms, of privacy, and a few others, to name a few. Uh, the ninth and tenth provided that more amendments would be easy to create, but if the Constitution didn't specifically mention something, it was up to the states. 
The Judiciary Act of 1989, and by 1989, I mean 1789, provided for the court system as we know it. John Jay was the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's talk Hamilton, who was really invested in fixing the fiscal problems of the Articles of Confederation. He would have been a trickle-downer in the 80s, but he asked Congress to take full responsibility for the national debt, funding it at par, plus the state's debt, and the interest collecting on it for the purpose of unifying the country under one fiscal system and bringing it closer together. Massachusetts was deep in debt, was excited. Virginia had sleeves. They were less in debt. They were less excited. Jefferson got the plan passed in exchange for putting the capital city near Virginia. The debt was worth $75 million and it tied the Union together, as Hamilton predicted, but money was needed to make it work, so the country put on customs duties, such as tariffs on foreign trade, 8% duties on imports, and an excise on whiskey. Um, Hamilton really wanted a national bank based on the British model, private with government stockholders, funding the circulation for the national currency, but Jefferson, a strict constructionist, said that the Constitution didn't provide for it, and thus it was impossible to do legally, to which Hamilton responded, we weren't told not to do it. Um, this is the idea of necessary and proper. You can do anything the Constitution doesn't specifically prohibit, such as coughing, <coughs> and it led to taxes and trade and implied powers. This is the loose interpretation. The Bank of the United States was created on this loose construction clause, the elastic clause. Um, but the excise on whiskey led to a rebellion in southwestern Pennsylvania where they tarred and feathered collectors. Washington and Hamilton led state militias. They crushed the rebellion, increased respect for the government, and uh, furthered the uh, need for a standing army, um, which the U.S. didn't really have at the time. Let's just be 100% sure. Yes, um... Yes, there were no state armies. Um, but the Constitution could provide for one, which is something the Articles of Confederation could not do. So that's exciting. Right? This is, I'm sure, really invigorating. Okay. Um, the Continental Army, so it was led to the states and the Articles of Confederation. It was left to the federal government in the Constitution. There we go. Um, all right, moving on from that little dip. Eventually, the government found its economic footing, but the states' rights were still compromised in the long term, so parties split up on Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian lines, first in Congress, then with citizens. Hamilton was a federalist, Jefferson a Democratic Republican. Throwing it over to France, a revolution began there in 1989. America was cool with the revolution because it was democratic and republican until the reign of terror beheaded a crap ton of people, worrying federalists and causing democratic republicans to sort of be like, eh, yeah, let's justify the means, and they hoped to honor their previous alliance. Washington, of the George variety, um, didn't want to entangle the U.S. in any alliances, so he told America, avoid war at all costs and wait for another fight, and issued a neutrality proclamation, making federalists very happy. The French ambassador made some trouble of some sort. I wouldn't worry about it. At this point, the British were still occupying parts of the U.S. for fur. Little Turtle, the leader of the Miami Confederation, essentially stated that the Ohio River would forever be the United States' western border. At the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794, the Miamis are routed and forced to sign the Treaty of Greenville, giving Indiana and Ohio to the U.S. and guaranteeing that the British would never touch the land. The British were getting more and more frustrated with the Americans, so John Jay went to London to prevent a war, and he signed Jay's treaty. Hamilton, though, tipped his hand, and he was only able to secure that the British would leave their posts and pay the damages in that Ohio area. There were no promises for the future, and the United States had to 
pay its pre-revolutionary debts, so the Democratic Republicans got a big boost. The Spanish were worried about a British-American alliance, so they signed Pickney's Treaty in 1795 so the U.S. could go to New Orleans and have Western Florida and navigate the Mississippi. George Washington was exhausted. Um, he retired, gave a farewell address, said only temporary alliances, two-term precedent. Adams took over for him. Um, it was nearly Thomas Jefferson, but he lost by three electoral votes and became the vice president. Partisanship got ugly really quickly. Um, and Hamilton hated Adams so much he resigned. The French were really unhappy with Jay's treaty, so they violated their own treaty with the United States and seized a bunch of American vessels. Adams didn't want war with France, so he sent diplomats to discuss with the French, but there were three French middlemen, X, Y, and Z, who cut them off before they could reach the French king, asking for a ransom. Adams said no to the ransom, saying, nope, the United States isn't going to participate in old world bullshit. This is the X, Y, Z affair. Um... People were very worried about a potential war with France, though. So the United States began capturing French vessels, getting ready in general for more conflict. Um, then the French say to the Americans that if they send a new minister, everyone can talk again. And in 1799, the United States submitted a name. In 1800, Napoleon entered into power. He wanted out of the problem at the Convention of 1800. All the past treaties are wiped off the table. The United States pays some reparations, and Adams put the welfare over of the country over his party's anti-French views. Um, but anti-French sentiments were at a really high level, so immigrants were mainly Democratic-Republicans, um, and Democratic-Republicans were really bad-mouthing the government. These are the two causes of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, the Alien Laws pushed the amount of years spent in the United States to earn naturalization to 14 years, and allowed the deportation and imprisonment of any immigrants at wartime. The Sedition Act imposed a fine on newspapers for speaking poorly of the government, a problem for newspapers, which were mainly on, which were mainly Democratic-Republican-leaning. Um, additionally, a bunch of Federalists were appointed to the courts, but the laws expired in 1801 and were not renewed as the Democratic-Republicans later took control. Madison and Jefferson were worried about the Constitution of Parties, so they called out the Federalists for overstepping their boundaries and demanded the nullification of the Alien and Sedition Acts by a compact theory saying that the states must approve the Constitution, so if a state doesn't like a law, they can change it. They brought it to the test in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. It's a state's rights view of the Constitution. It's what laid the groundwork for secession. But it's eventually concluded that the people, not the states, have power, and that constitutionality lies in the Supreme Court. Though the party links are basically Federalists state that those who own the country should run it, while the Democratic-Republicans, though mainly upper class and should have been Federalists, wanted the weak central government with states' rights enshrined, a personal government with a strong press. That is period three, ladies and gents. Alright, period four, chapter 11. The Federalists made a ton of enemies from their alien and sedition debacle, and Hamilton split with John Adams. Um, and given that the fact that the tax hike to pay for the war with France never turned into a war with France, they got decimated in the election of 1800. It was really Jefferson with Burr as vice president, but Burr kind of went on a loophole, so the House selected Jefferson. It was the Revolution of 1800. Jefferson preached compromise and equality at his inauguration. He was pretty moderate. Democratic-Republicans had nothing to oppose anymore, so they went and undid every single Federalist thing from the last decade. Uh, they pardoned the Martyrs of the Alien Act, they lowered citizenship limits, and they removed the excise tax from Hamilton's tax plans, but otherwise kept the whole thing. The Federalists, in their last gasp of lame duck period, passed the Judiciary Act of 1801, putting 16 new midnight judges into the circuit. The Democratic-Republicans repealed it, and they tried to impeach justices, but found themselves unable to remove Chief Justice John Marshall. 
Um, another justice that was removed, Marbury sued for his spot after James Madison attempted to remove him from his spot, which was denied, but it did allow Marshall to establish the precedent of judicial review, saying that the law was at fault, which gave the Supreme Court authority over the Constitution and ensured an independent judiciary. Two things he used to put the federal government over state governments and ensured that all future laws remain in the realm of the Constitution, which really changed Jefferson's presidency. Jefferson wanted peace and fiscal stability and decreased the size of the military to do all of that. Um, but when North African pirates declared war in the U.S., the country had to re-raise an army and a navy for the Tripolitan War. Um, it cost $60,000 for peace. Napoleon had his hands full in France, trying to take over Europe, but when he lost Haiti in the Haitian Revolution, he decided he needed to produce food for Haiti, and he didn't want the Brits in Canada to have the French territory, so he hoped that the U.S. would turn its back on Britain and tried to give him, tried to give him the U.S. the land that Spain had given them earlier in North America. Monroe and Livingston went to France with intent, the intent of buying all the land east of New Orleans, and as they came back with Louisiana territory for a really low price of $15 million, doubling the U.S. size. There were some questions regarding its constitutionality, which Jefferson dodged by saying that the whole thing was a treaty and sort of admitted that its necessity outweighed its legality. The United States lost its alliance with England and stopped fighting with the French while keeping many of their civil laws in the area that they had just occupied from the French. The U.S. was a true isolationist for the first time because no other old world power occupied North America. Lewis and Clark went out with the course of discovery and found some stuff as well as people moved west rapidly. Aaron Burr, master opportunist, tried to convince the Federalist Party that the Louisiana Purchase was an overreach and then tried to liberate New York and New England. Hamilton stopped it from doing so, leading Burr stopping Hamilton from existing shebang. Burr then conspired with the governor of the Louisiana Territory to expand it to Mexico and Florida and establish a new nation, um, which was also uncovered later. Burr was tried for treason, escaped to Europe, and then really proved that it was going to be very difficult to govern the new lands. In 1804, Jefferson was re-elected right as European conflict restarted, which hurt maritime trade as the British held the seas and the French held the land. Um, the British issued the Origin Council stating that any boat that went to France had to stop in England first, um, leaving Napoleon to declare that if a boat visited England, the French would capture it. In other words, the U.S. could only lose. In the meantime, the British were doing something called impressment, where they took U.S. Uh, sea people and enlisted them in the Redcoats against their will. In 1807, the Chesapeake Affair occurred where the British demanded the U.S. hand over four British deserters. The U.S. said no, leading to the British to open fire on the Jefferson, or not on Jefferson, but on the U.S. ship. Jefferson at this point could have gone to war. Instead, he opted for an embargo. The Navy was weak and the U.S. wasn't really in a position to fight a major war. Everyone still needed raw materials, though, but the United States couldn't, couldn't export them per the Embargo Act of 1807. Um, the economy suffered before Europe noticed that the United States wasn't uh, giving them any more goods, which led to a lot of illegal trade on the Canadian border. The rebirth of the Federalist suit repealed the Embargo of 1807 with the Non-Intercourse Act of 1809, which allowed the U.S. to trade with everyone but England and France. The British were simply too determined and unreliant on U.S. goods to carry. The French still had their lot in the American colonies, so economic fighting wasn't really going to be how the U.S. got out of this. In 1808, James Madison was elected president as European conflict at a tipping point. Congress repealed the Non-Intercourse Act with Macon's Bill No. 2, allowing for free trade, but also it ensured that the, free, the first country to close off trade with the United States, probably Britain and France, would have the embargo restored against them. 
Napoleon made an offer to guarantee never closing off American trade if the British would do the same. Madison accepted that, but the British never stopped that, um, never stopped their policy, so the United States had to embargo the British and lose neutrality. Let's talk about Native Americans. In the South and the West, new House representatives were elected that demanded war, and some Native Americans allied with them. They were called the War Hawks. Tecumseh, who led the Shawnees, uh, demanded that the United States stop expanding and united every tribe east of the Mississippi. The War Hawks started questioning the British for funding said Indians, and William Henry Harrison led an army on Tecumseh, killing his buddy the Prophet and the Shawnees at the Battle of Tippecanoe. Um, Tecumseh then allied himself with England, who the Indians. His later death was the death of the idea of an independent Indian state. Warhawks, desperate for some action and some confidence in the Republican experiment, declared war on England and the Indians in June 1812. New England stood with the British and forever hated Napoleon, so the upcoming war would be one that the Jeffersonian Republicans were going to have to justify. That is chapter 11, and let's move into chapter 12 here. The British had a pretty weak spot in Canada as the War of 1812 began, and the United States had a shot at Montreal at the very beginning. The U.S. also had a very strong navy compared to its army. Um, while the British captured American forts, Oliver Perry built a fleet on Lake Erie that captured the British fleet, which retreated, so the U.S. had the Great Lakes, so then they could play defense exclusively as the British were going to have to send attacks through Canada. The U.S. then won Lake Champlain, the British retreated again, and the Union was safe before it ended. The British made a last gasp attempt to burn D.C. and Baltimore. They did burn D.C. Um, they then went to New Orleans, where Andrew Jackson held them off at the Battle of New Orleans, became a national hero. Um, the Royal Navy, though, blockaded the U.S., which crippled the American economy. Right before New Orleans, Tsar Alex I stepped in, hoping to keep the British strong, and proposed a treaty. So in 1814, five Americans went to Ghent, where the British demanded the territory of Maine and the Great Lakes, as well as a neutral Indian state, before losing key battles, and they saved face with the Treaty of Ghent, which basically served as an armistice. Um... Federalists were pretty angry about the war, um, and they all convened at the Hartford Convention in 1814, directly before the Battle of New Orleans, where it seemed like the United States was about to be crushed, and they demanded money from the federal government for their lost trade, and they wanted an embargo, um, and an end to the three-fifths policy, and and to consecutive presence from the same state, because the first three had all been from Virginia, and term limits. They went to Washington, they made their demands, and then the Treaty of Ghent was revealed, and they stayed quiet. Um, The 1812 conflict was mainly the product of failures of Jay's treaty, but it gave the United States some recognition and confidence and showed the world that the United States would resist any forms of enrichment. It also killed off the Federalist Party and any hope of Indian inequality. The Canadians were very angry regarding Ghent, and an arms race occurred on the Great Lakes until the Rush-Bigot Agreement, which was basically a mutual de-escalation from both sides. With two victories under their belt, national unity in America was on the rise, leading to literature, textbooks, paintings, magazines, a new bank, a new capital building, a new army, and the end of the Navy's fighting with pirates. Um, like a real standing army, like they... The book's unclear about how the army developed. Um, manufacturing was also on the rise, with new factories to compete with cheap British goods. The Democratic Republicans didn't want to fund manufacturing, so many states took it into their own hands, so the government did step in with the tariff of 1816 that put a 20 to 25% duty on imports. It was around this time that Henry Clay came up with the American system, basically said we need a strong bank for credit, a strong tariff for manufacturing, and use those revenues for rivers and canals that connect the Northeast um, so the South and the West could send materials there, and then they would produce products for the rest of the country. In 1816, the Democratic-Republicans nominated James Monroe, Ron Monroe, Monroe, who won by a mile, and he went on a goodwill tour, ushering in the era of good feelings. 
Um, clay system was kind of broken because it wasn't sort of fully used, so deflation and bankruptcy and an economic panic that could trace its roots back to clay, um, which the failures of clay really traced its roots back to over-speculation on the frontier and the Bank of the United States gambling on loans. This was the panic of 1819. Nationalism was hurt, farms were closed, and the poor were screwed, often thrown into debtors' prisons. Um... Between 1791 and 1819, the U.S. established 90 frontier states that alternated free and slave, made up of cheap land that Christians and tobacco planters had been spreading towards and through. The South and the West were debating about who would control the West when Missouri asked for slavery, um, or the South and the East, the North, pardon me, were debating about who controlled the West when Missouri asked for slavery, so then the Congressional Talmadge Amendment was thrown around that said there would never be slaves in Missouri and any children if slaves found in the state would be emancipated immediately. Um, so essentially, even if you did bring your slave there, if they were the child of a slave, they would be freed. Um, the Senate stopped it, but the president was dangerous for the South because if Congress could stop slavery in Missouri, could they do it in all of the South? Um, the other name for this dilemma was the peculiar institution. Slavery was in the national life for the first time, uh, and then the compromise came. Maine and Missouri would both be admitted to states. Missouri would have slavery, but it would be the northern border of any slavery. The Missouri Compromise. It lasted for 34 years, ended the era of good feelings. Um, in this time was also the advent of the steamboat. The West had pretty little influence over the rest of the country, but they did have just enough to get the Land Act of 1820, which offered cheap land for more and more expansion for a buck twenty-five an acre. The money was used to pay for the money being used to pay for this came from wildcat banks that were really screwing up the country's credit. In the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Marshall spent a lot of time enlarging the power of the federal government over that of the states with things like McCulloch, McCulloch versus Maryland that say that states cannot tax the federal government because the power to tax is the power to destroy. Coens versus Virginia that allowed the Supreme Court to reverse state decisions. Gibbons v. Ogden that gave Congress control over interstate trade as well as other decisions that prevented the powers of the states to get too large. It was a loose construction of few that basically said the federal government and the Supreme Court were the voices of the consent of the people. Um, back in the White House, Monroe and his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, negotiated the Anglo-American Convention in 1918. They agreed to share northwestern fisheries with the British. Um, the Louisiana Territory would be the northern border of the United States from the Minnesota area to the Rockies. The United States then put a presence in Oregon along with the British. Um, the Spanish had just invaded Florida, so Adams went to go punish the Indians that had helped them out, and they took two Spanish posts and convinced Monroe to claim the majority Indian land. They ratified it quickly with the 1819 Florida Purchase Treaty, and most of Florida went to the U.S., and Texas went to the Spanish. In Europe, autocrats were really scared after Napoleon and were unhappy with democracy. Um, the U.S. got worried about this because the Russians were making a lot of Pacific land claims on parts of the continent that the U.S. was hoping to get, um, and the British were trading a lot with democratic Latin American countries. So, so the U.S. and the British sort of made a joint declaration together that nobody could acquire Latin America. Adams was really skeptical of it, um, but Monroe figured that the British would be doing the brunt of the work, and they signed on to the Monroe Doctrine. European monarchs hated it, but they were stopped from doing anything by the British. Americans didn't really think or care about it, and eventually everyone else stopped thinking about North America. The Doctrine was just self-defense, and it was only as powerful as the American and British army. Um, though Americans figured that they would never fight a war again, because they didn't want to. Alright, chapter 13. 
The election of 1824 was the final old-style election. It ended in a four-way tie between Adams, Clay, Henry Crawford, and Andrew Jackson. Clay was a speaker. Crawford had a stroke, so it came down to Jackson and Adams. Um, Clay got to make the choice, so when he picked Adams in exchange for the position of Secretary of State, it was a corrupt bargain. Jackson and her pissed. Um, it was the last time the presidency would ever be chosen behind closed doors other than the election of 2000. Adams was awkward, never had much support, built a bunch of infrastructure. South didn't really like him, and the West wanted him to expand more, but he was sort of for dealing with Indians fairly. Jackson started campaigning again almost immediately and led his Democratic Republicans against Adams' National Republicans. Um, it was frontiersmen versus aristocrat. Jackson won the West, South, and Middle States. Um, the dividing line was the old Northwest. And when the Electoral College was recalibrated for the current population, it became an absolute landslide. Jackson never went to college, but was the first nominated Western president, bringing his Hickoryites with him, a bunch of whom got into a fight at the inaugural brawl before they capitalized on the spoil system where they got jobs in public office in exchange for supporting Jackson on the premise that the system needed new blood, which was correct, but the execution was problematic. Industry was really hoping for a protective tariff at the time, but Jackson really did not want them to have that, so he proposed an obscenely high tariff that would never pass until it passed and it decimated the southern economy. Um, the Tariff of Abominations, also known as the Tariff of Abominoms, made South Carolina so angry that John Calhoun declared it completely null. The null fires in South Carolina attempted to nullify the tariff, came up a vote short, won a large majority, and declared a void in 1832. Jackson then sent the Navy and the military, leading to a few proclamations and counter-proclamations that overall kept South Carolina in the Union. It was the last of secession that we heard of until the Civil War, as Henry Clay, a Kentucky senator now, came up with a compromise to lower the tariff by 10% a year. 10% by the year 1842, uh, also known as the Compromise Tariff of 1833. The force bill is passed along with it, stating that the military did have the authority to collect tariffs if need be. Um, back to Native Americans. The United States was expanding and had violated a boatload of treaties with Native American tribes who were at the time treated as foreign nations. Christianizing hadn't really happened outside of the five civilized, Cherokee, Choctaw, Creeks, Chickasaws, and Seminoles, but white people didn't really care. As... Um, George? Who's George? Georgia. <laughs> it's late, everyone. As Georgia deemed a Cherokee council to be illegal and gave themselves the right to the land, the Supreme Court stuck that struck down the decision, but Jackson essentially let it happen, saying the Supreme Court's made their decision, now let him enforce it. And they introduced voluntary immigration for Indians to go west and keep their culture that uprooted 100,000 uh, Indians in the Indian Removal Act, hitting the five civilized the hardest on the Trail of Tears. Additionally, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established to guarantee the rights of the Indians, but really to uphold the precedent of being able to move the Indians west over and over. The Blackhawks and the Sioux Braves fought back in the Blackhawk War. That included Abe Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. Seminoles were captured out of the Everglades and forced into Oklahoma. Jackson's policy was mainly based on distrust of business, so he really hated bank monopolies, and especially banks that didn't issue paper currency like the bus that was really only accountable to its investors and not the country. This led to the Bank War of 1832, where Clay and Webster tried to bring up the bus as an election issue, the Bank of the United States bringing up its renewal and ramming a new charter through Congress, so Jackson either had to alienate his followers with the East, but they didn't realize that the East wasn't the majority anymore, so it didn't matter. Jackson vetoed it and deemed it unconstitutional based on his own personal grounds. The election of 1832 was between Jackson and bus-backed Clay and the anti-Masonic order who uh, hated Jackson because he was a Mason, I think. Um, it was a religious campaign, a moral campaign. Jackson wanted small government uh, at the first set of national conventions. 
uh, and the first set of party platforms. He won with the Southwest Pennsylvania and New York. Maxon then tried to end the bus due to expire in 1836. Biddle, the president of the bank, tried to keep it alive, so Jackson withdrew federal deposits and fired three Treasury secretaries before he could do it. Biddle then called back bank loans, leading to a financial crisis that did in a bunch of banks and a financial vacuum with a series of booms and busts, especially given that all surplus funds were going to state banks that were pro-Jackson. These were pet banks. Meanwhile, the wildcat banks mainly pet banks, were filling the market with paper money, and the currency was so unreliable that Jackson had to issue the specie circular requiring that payments for government land be made in gold and silver. This, in short, is the Panic of 1837. Taking a deep breath. Here we go. The Democratic-Republicans um, basically embraced Jackson's view wholeheartedly and rebranded as the Democrats, so all their opponents, such as Clay, Webster, Calhoun, um who uh, put a censure of Jackson over the bank debacle, the anti-Masons, the Nullies, and the supporters of the American system, all became the Whigs. They were a party of progressive conservatives in favor of active government, reforms, and infrastructure improvement over Western expansion. Um, and they called out the Democrats for forgetting the market economy and the economy. And in the election of 1836, Jackson rammed Martin Van Buren through the nomination. The Whigs couldn't pick anyone and hope for a split vote, but then Van Buren won the electoral vote by enough. He was the first president born post-1776, and he inherited all of the problems of Jackson, um, which stretched from Canada to Texas. Economically, again, this over-speculation, uh, wildcat banks, failing infrastructure, the bank war that had led to Biddle calling back loans, the species circular, the failure of the recent wheat crop, and the British banks, again, back to the bus, led to this massive economic crisis known as the Panic of 1837. So a bunch of banks, um, mainly pet banks, included collapsed. Land sales went down, commodities decreased, factories were hurt, and the Whigs demanded credit and a tariff to fix the problem. Van Buren, though, just signed the divorce bill that got American money out of the banks and into an independent treasury. Over in Texas, Mexico had just won independence, and they gave Stephen F. Austin, who was very much in it for the money, the area to develop. He was an American. American settlers were mainly convicts or people who had fallen upon rough times. It was a really hard-to-control area because Mexico said, no slaves allowed, and then the Texans brought their slaves. Uh, and then they declared independence in 1836. Sam Houston led the charge. Santa Ana came to the area, massacred a load of Americans at the Alamo and the Goliad. So more and more American opposition was rising against Mexico, and more Americans were coming to help. Sam Houston established, you guessed it, Houston. Mexicans outnumbered Texans by about 13 to 9, but then Houston snuck into a siesta, killed a bunch of Mexicans, and captured Santa Ana, leading to two treaties, one that kept Mexico out of Texas, and the other establishing the Rio Grande as the area's southwestern border. The U.S. had remained neutral, but had no idea what to do. Jackson recognized it as an independent nation, but Texas wanted to be a state. Slavery was the main thing, leading to no public support for it in the North. In 1840, the Democrats renominated Van Buren pretty reluctantly, while the Whigs united behind William Henry Harrison. Everyone blamed the Democrats for the problems and didn't know what they stood for, and Harrison's log cabin image excited everyone. He won the Electoral College by more than enough, and it was an area of expansionism in the economy and populist Democrats. Webster made the point that the presidency was for the common man, which pissed off aristocrats, but they weren't the majority anymore, so they had no say. This ushered in the first true two-party system since the ailing Federalists, based on Republicanism, and the Democrats were sort of a more state and individual liberties total diversion, and the Whigs were a more society and governmental means for the ends. Um, they were similar, and they attempted to appeal to the masses. There was a lot of intra- and inter-party horse trading, and there were no geographical boundaries. It was restraint versus involvement and rights versus reform. All right, into chapter 16 here. Let's talk about slavery, which had been on the rise in Gulf states for 
basically years of the saying as I close the door because it's getting late or something. The North had been profiting off of slavery by transporting the goods that slaves created to England, or rather that they manufactured using the raw materials that the slaves created to England. Cotton was about half the value of American exports, and it accounted for about half the cotton in the world. The British needed slavery in the U.S. because cotton and cloth employed about one in five Brits, leading to sort of a sense of comfort that the English would support the Confederacy in the event of a disunion. Before the Civil War, the South was mainly governed by planters. 2,000 families had 1,000 slaves or more, and they ran the region and the nation. It wasn't a very democratic setup, more of an idealistic feudal society, if you asked Sir Walter Scott. Relationships were pretty horrible outside of a very select few between women and slaves, and nobody in the South believed in abolition. Cotton, which was really wasteful, butchered the lands um, and led to poorer and smaller farmers moving west and northwest, so monopolies increased in the South. It was an unstable system that relied upon speculation and one crop. The northern economy, on the other hand, was diversified, but the south didn't really manufacture that much, meaning that the wealth gap between the two regions increased, and the south depended on the north, and they hated that, and they were very Anglo and anti-immigration. The book claims that there were 1,733 families that held 1,000 or more slaves and 345,000 other slaveholding families existed, and only two-thirds of them had or only one third of them had more than 10 slaves and only one quarter of whites owned. Believe what you will. Typically, um, apparently small farmers worked with their slaves to make a modest living and non-owners were redneck parasites. Everyone defended the system though because they wanted to be a part of it and also because they were racist. Appalachian whites were a little different because they hated both the slaves and the owners. There were some 250,000 free blacks in the South, uh, mainly the children of masters or slaves who had bought their freedom. Life was still tough, and those 250,000 in the North found it tough to get jobs, and they couldn't testify against anyone who charged them with a crime, so they could be pretty easily captured. They couldn't vote, they couldn't go to school, they were hated by the Irish and whites in general. Frederick Douglass, Frederick, Frederick Doug, Frederick Douglass uh, was maimed by a mob even in the North before he sort of came to prominence. Back in the South, um, after the cotton boom, the amount of slaves tripled from 1800 to 1860 to around 4 million. Importation ended in 1808, Britain had ended it the year before, and the West African Squadron uh, took ships and freed captives, and supposedly there was a death penalty for slavers. Three million slaves, though, were somehow still taken to Brazil and the West Indies, uh, thousands of whom were smuggled into the South. Slavers were acquitted, and reproduction, a population boom, and internal trade made up for lost intercontinental trade. More expensive slaves were considered investments and kept away from super dangerous work. Living conditions still sucked, and slaves worked all day with no rights beyond protection, I say as I do air quotes poorly, from arbitrary murder. Um, families were separated, slaves were flogged by breakers, and the system in 1860 was well established, meaning mainly in the southern Black Belt, which was much worse than in the old south of like Virginia, North Carolina. Um, some families were able to create identities. Um, and kids were being named for grandparents or former masters, and, you know, there was responsorial preaching, so there were some parts of it that maybe weren't... Uh, no, there, it was all objectively terrible. Um, there was no chance for anyone to rise up, and some uh, slaves actually fought back, working the absolute minimum, stealing food or stopping equipment, and freeing their masters. Gabriel led a rebellion in Virginia in 1800 and ended up being hanged, Denmark Vesey found a similar fate after his 1822 rebellion in South Carolina. In 1831, Nat Turner's rebellion killed 60 white Virginians and led to the death of many blacks. 
The Stoto Rebellion, I believe, was in, yeah, that was pre-revolutionary um, in South Carolina. Um, in 1839, John Quincy Adams um, tried to convince the U.S. to send an overtaken slave ship um, that had ended up in the U.S. back to Sierra Leone. Uh, whites were getting racister with time, and it was becoming apparent that the United States was going to be the last holdout in the world with slavery. Um, but as the horrors of slavery spread, the first abolitionists did come into the fold, with the, first with the idea of sending slaves back to Africa. In 1817, the American Colonization Society established Liberia, which began in 1822 with 15,000 freed slaves, um, but mostly saw themselves as African-American and were uninterested in going to Africa. Religion also played a force, um, as did William Wilberforce's freeing of the West Indies, and he then went around the U.S. and begged for an end to the slavery system. Abolition was overall on the rise. The Tappan brothers paid for T.D. Wilde to get an education for him to preach abolition. On January 1st, 1831, William Lloyd Garrison began the radical abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. This is a pretty, this is one of those terms that's like, if they ask us about slavery on the DBQ or on the short answer, this is one of those things that you should remember because it's, I think, going to give you a pretty easy, specific thing. Um... Yes, The Liberator, which was a radical abolitionist newspaper. In 1833, the American Anti-Slave Society was established. Um, and Wendell Phillips began a boycott of sugar and cotton. I believe he led it. Uh, black abolitionists started getting involved. David Walker held up the radical end of the movement with his appeal to the colored citizens of the world in 1829, calling on black Americans to rise up and slay their masters. Sojourner Truth and Martin Delaney also contributed. And Frederick Douglass made speeches around the country. In the South, though, or even below Pennsylvania, abolition was sort of hard to find, especially post-Nat Turner's Rebellion, Haiti, and the Liberator. Virginia um, shot down emancipation forever. They tightened codes, they put a price on Garrison's head, called the North oversteppers, abolitionists the devil, sent people to jail, even for debating slavery, said that, you know, the Bible said it was good, and Aristotle said it was good. It's a family, it's great. Garrison was not even popular in the North, and slavery was something that the area sort of dealt with for the sake of the Union, and also the South owed the North $300 million and gave them a ton of cotton, so burning bridges didn't really make sense. Um, though into the 1850s, a change sort of began. The North started seeing the South as hateful, and they moved to more of a middle ground, saying that slavery shouldn't be abolished or extended, um, the Free Soilers. In 1841, Douglas made a speech after his escape and entered the National View and used politics to advance... Um, his ends, instead of stirring things up aimlessly, sort of like Garrison or maybe Walker. More parties of liberation, such as the Liberty, the Free Soil, and the Republican Party sprung up, and people began to think this could be something we may need to fight for. All right, chapter 17. The year is 1841, and the Whigs, all hoping for federal jobs, settled on William Henry Harrison, who wins as a puppet for Webster and Clay, and served for a whopping four weeks before kicking the bucket. That was a bit of crashed it wasn't really funny but john tyler who was on the ballot to acquiesce states writers and kind of a democrat took over as president he disagreed with the whigs on the bank and the tariff and when the whigs introduced a new bus he vetoed it himself based on the constitution not calling for a financial corporation the whigs don't like him the democrats disowned him and no one can impeach him so he everyone resigns from his cabinet and disowns him but he then settles on the tariff of 1842 which lowers rates, which is fine as a mini depression from 1837, 1839, panic of 1837. And that was the Jackson 
going AWOL on the banks thing. Um, let's talk about England. After the revolution in 1812, the United States had bad relations with the Brits, especially since the Federalists, the main Britain party, were gone. The writers fought each other uh, in travel books, journals, in the Third War with England that had something to do with copyright laws. Also, unless we get a United States relations with England DBQ, I think you're probably fine. During the Canadian Revolution, the U.S. sent the Caroline across the Niagara, prompting the British to attack New York in 1837. So the United States made arrests on McLeod, the guy who led the attacks, and the British then threatened war if the United States killed him and offered up the British West Indies as a haven for um, runaway slaves. There was also a dispute over the main border, which prompt the British, prompted the British to assert themselves by building a road from Halifax to Quebec through disputed territory, leading to a good old lumberjack fight in the Aristook River Valley that could have snowballed. I wrote but up there. I don't. I don't get the joke. Um, the British sent an amateur diplomat Ashburton to talk to Webster, and they split the difference. The U.S. got seven twelfths of the land, including accidentally Minnesota's iron ore supply, but the British got their road. Over in Texas, Mexico did not think Texas was independent, and the U.S. wasn't saying much about it as Texas fought Mexico. Europe, though, hated its dependence on U.S. fiber and made a bunch of treaties with Texas, and the British sort of were hoping to puppeteer an independent Texas. After the election of 1844, when Polk beat Clay, Tyler was sort of like Polk was a Democrat, Clay was a Whig. Tyler sort of said, screw it, um, and acquired Texas and got a joint resolution in favor of it, and in 1845 welcomed it into the Union. Mexico had no shot at keeping it, but they were still pissed off, understandably. Over to Oregon, um, the Rockies to the Pacific Alaska included were claimed by Russia, the United States, the Brits, and the Spaniards. The Spanish and the Russians... Uh, gave up, and the British essentially declared that they also had the right to the north of the Columbia, where they had settled. Um, but Lewis and Clark had also explored and placed missionaries there, so everyone settles on a joint occupation since the 20, the Anglo-American Convention. Um, but as more and more American pioneers go to Oregon, the British were outnumbered by the thousands, and the U.S. got full control essence, but still disputed people sort of think 5440 or bust, um, that's the line that they want. Um, Polk's presidency had a four-point program, lowering tariffs, establishing an independent treasury, getting California, and dealing with Oregon. The Walker tariff lowered rates from 32 to 25%, so a boom followed that. The treasury was reliberated in 1846. In Oregon, Polk couldn't get the Southern Democrats to care about it, so he asks England to split on the 49th parallel, and everyone the Senate included agrees in 1846, and the Old Northwest was sad. Um, with California, Polk wanted the area really just San Francisco. Um... But there weren't enough Americans in the area to justify taking it over, and American-Mexican relations sucked, as the Mexicans threatened war with the U.S. took California, which was even more problematic seeing as they were in debt to the U.S. who had taken Texas. On the border, Texas claimed the Rio Grande, and Polk was happy to agree, but a large no-man's land sat between the old border and the Rio Grande, and the British were considering purchasing California. The United States tried to iron everything up by sending John Slidell to offer 25 million bucks to Mexico in exchange for the Texas border in California. <laughs> I'm going to quote this. I'm, I'm quoting the script verbatim. The Mexicans hit the U.S. with the fresh yeet, saying no, prompting the U.S. to send Zachary Taylor with 4,000 troops from Nueces to the Rio Grande. And Polk asked Congress to declare war on Mexico about the money and saying no to Slidell. Um, people were iffy on it, but then when the news broke that 16 Americans had freshly been yoked, I'm just kidding, had died somewhere in between Texas and Mexico, everyone was all in on the war, though as it turns out, Polk had sort of rent the truth, and Lincoln asked him to tell exactly where people had died. These are the spot resolutions. 
Lincoln was a congressman at the time. It didn't really matter because Polk had calculated that the U.S. needed the California and the British couldn't have it even if the cost was war. All right, we're going to take a sip of water here. Polk claimed the war would be limited. Santa Ana, exiled from Mexico, asked him to get him back into Mexico in exchange for flipping. Um, and then he triple-crossed, and the U.S. launched an operation in which Stephen Kearney sent about 1,000, 2,000 men on the Santa Fe Trail. In California, John Fremont and some other well-armed explorers and overthrew Mexico with some help from the Navy and established a California Bear Flag Republic. Taylor was racking up winds from the Rio Grande in Mexico and at Buena Vista, um... His 5,000 troops held off about 25,000 Mexicans. Um, General Winifield Scott went to Mexico with very few troops in super poor conditions and somehow got a win in Mexico City in September 1847. Anyways, Polk tried to end the war and sent Trist, who accidentally gave Santa Ana another $10,000. Polk called him back, but he defied him because he knew there was an opportunity for a treaty, and he signed one, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo which got the U.S. Texas west to Oregon, including California, for about 15 million bucks. In other words, half of Mexico, which really anchored Mexican citizens a lot, understandably. In the Senate, anti-slavery Whigs, they were conscious Whigs, hated the war, and they were really ready, really ready, very ready to end the war by cutting off supplies, so the treaty had to get finished, but expansionists wanted all of Mexico. Calhoun calmed everyone down, the Senate got done. Polk sent Mexico another 18 million bucks for their troubles. It killed about 13,000 Americans, mainly from disease, and Mexico hated the U.S. even more, as did the rest of Latin America as a result of the war. Anti-slavery wakes up that the South is pushing the war to expand slavery, and when the land expanded, it meant the status quo on slavery couldn't continue. But the U.S. did expand by 33% and learned some valuable war lessons that trained future Civil War heroes and improved the stature of the army. The Civil War, though, would be known as Santa Ana's Revenge, as old thought and slavery had to change. Every free state but one agreed to the Wilmot Proviso. There would be no slavery in the New Mexican Oregon Territory, though that obviously didn't happen. All right, that is period four. We're going to come back really shortly with period five after I take a sip of water again. All right, period five, look at that. Let's get going with chapter 18. In 1840, after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, there was all this new Western territory and a boatload of questions regarding slavery, and there's a north-south split, understandably, on the subject. Everyone wants to ignore the issue of slavery. The Democrats nominated Louis Cass for the election of 1848, who came up with the concept of popular sovereignty, i.e. every state, every territory makes a decision themselves. The Whigs nominate Zachary Taylor, claiming Webster had too many enemies to run, running solely on virtue while quietly ignoring that he was a slaveholder. Abolitionists and industrialists created the Free Soil Party on the Wilmot Proviso, which Martin Van Buren joined on the basis that slavery was bad for whites as it clustered the lands and jobs that white people needed for upwards mobility. Taylor won with some help from Van Buren, but wasn't much of a politician. In California, gold was found at Sutter's Mill in 19, 1849, so people went by the 10,000 to move to the lawless, godless area of California, which applied to the Union for statehood without slavery pretty quickly. The South, which was well off and overrepresented, was concerned about losing their dominance of sectional balance uh, if California entered the Union, meaning that there would be very little slave territory left, especially if California set a precedent for the Mexican area. Questions were being arisen yeah, in Texas and Washington, D.C., where slavery had just been abolished, and around the country. Slaves, in the meantime, had been running away via the Underground Railroad, most prolifically with Harriet Tubman rescuing 800 slaves on 19 trips. The South, in turn, wanted a tougher fugitive slave law than the one passed in 1793, which went unenforced in the North. The numbers weren't really the problem as much as the principle. 
1850, the Senate met to discuss admitting California to the Union, prompting a secession conference in Nashville in 1851. The new and old gathered in the Capitol. Um, Clay, 73 years old, spoke first about compromise with Stephen Douglas and speaking uh, as sort of his backup. He was a young senator from Illinois, marking the importance of concessions. The North slowly got behind a fugitive slave law. Um, then came Calhoun, age 68, uh, and dying, crying about Southern rights, and telling everyone that if they continued discussing slavery, it would weed toward this union. Um, then he died, rips in the chat. Press F to pay respects. Uh, then came Daniel Webster, who gave a three-hour 7th of March speech, who came up, and he came up with the ultimate compromise. There would be a new fugitive slave law, but slavery would not expand past its current location if only for climate-related regions. regions. Uh, this pissed off the younger guard from the North who had only known Union. Um, W.H. Seward led the new guard, claiming that they should never compromise, abolish slavery, and do more in the name of God. Taylor then claimed he would veto every compromise and use the army against Texans, attempting to expand the state, and then he promptly died, press F, to pay respects. Millard Fillmore took over for him and signed the Compromise of 1850 into law happily. Claim Webster were the leaders of the compromise, and nobody could argue against it because of the good health of the economy, leading to a second era of good feelings. The issue was gone. The issue was not gone. North was getting richer, and the longer they waited to confront the South, the better the odds were for them. They got a better deal as California, Utah, New Mexico entered. Well, Utah didn't exactly enter, but it was close. The latter two allowed for slavery, but the land prevented them from behaving like slave states. This led to the South looking elsewhere for land, um, but the South did get the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 that prevented slaves from testifying, appearing at trial, in addition to bringing judges, bribing judges to send slaves back to the South, which pissed off the North and raised the profile of abolitionism, turning conservative Whigs into hardline abolitionists and increasing the stature of the Underground Railroad. Mobs would rescue slaves in some states, such as Massachusetts, wouldn't even enforce it, or they would tell the federal government that they weren't allowed to use their jails. The South, um, appalled that they had even made that many concessions to the North, couldn't believe the Northerners' audacity to defy the deal. The next president, Franklin Pierce, a New Hampshire Democrat, faced off against Winfield Scott, a pro-South Whig who supported the Fugitive Slave Law. Um... Nobody liked him, so Pierce won with some help of a third party siphoning off the vote, and that was that for the Whigs, um, meaning that only sectional parties remained except for some smaller ones. With California in its back pocket, the U.S. attempted to go manifest a little bit more destiny and began thinking about Central America, which they deemed vital to controlling the continent. The British held Nicaragua and Colombia, and the U.S. had to practice neutrality, um, so they agreed to the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty, stating that neither side would build a waterway or a canal. Um, the South, though, saw more potential slave territory in Cuba, Mexico, and in Nicaragua, where Americans tried to take over the state before being stopped by a Central American coalition. Pierce, in exchange, withdrew American diplomats. Um, Cuba was a little more tricky. Slavery already existed there, and it could be turned into multiple states because uh, it was big enough. Polk had offered the Spanish 100 million bucks for it, to which they said, hell no. The U.S. sent two expeditions to take Cuba, both of which failed miserably and killed a load of imperialist Southerners. Uh, Cuba retaliated, seizing American ships, and they leaked the Austin Manifesto, the American plan to take Cuba from the French, Spanish, and British ambassadors in the event that Spain wouldn't accept a $120 million price tag for it. With California and Oregon, the U.S. turned their attention to becoming a Pacific power. They didn't really know how to tap the markets. The Brits had already won the opium wars, and President Tyler had sent 
Caleb Cushing to get the U.S. the same access to ports. So that was the Treaty of Longhia to counterweight the British, and it also allowed Americans accused of, tra- accused of crimes to be tried in the U.S. American-Chinese trade went up, and missionaries left for China. In Japan, where you could check out at any time, but you could never leave, um, they removed their isolationist policies in 1853. Millard Fillmore sent a ship, commanded by Matthew Perry, who knew what he was doing, um, and he negotiated his way ashore, and impressed enough to return in a year with gifts to sign the Treaty of Kanagawa in March 1854, establishing foreign relations between the two states. Now, the U.S. put its attention towards getting to California, or getting towards California and Oregon. Railroads seemed like the only solution, but nobody knew what to do about it, given that part of the country that would get a railroad, that part would get a railroad would benefit greatly. The South, unsurprisingly, proposed a route through the South to Los Angeles, but the best route for that was south of the border. Jefferson Davis, Secretary of War, sent James Gadsden to Mexico, giving Santa Ana about 10 million bucks. James Gadsden to Mexico, giving Santa Ana about 10 million bucks for a desert in the Tucson. Or in Tucson, this was the Gadsden purchase, meaning that the North would have to run a potential railroad through Nebraska, which was unorganized. Stephen Douglas was invested in Chicago and wanted it to be the center of the railroad, so he came up with an idea. Divide Nebraska into Kansas and Nebraska, both of which would be popular sovereignty, assuming that Kansas South would be slave and Nebraska North would be free. The Missouri Compromise though was in the way, so Douglas forced its repeal impulsively. The North was pissed off and never touched slavery's expansion again. The Democrats were also split on Douglas's lines, um, but in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was miraculously passed. That was the end of compromise. There would be no more enforcement of the fugitive slave law. Relations between the North and the South were wrecked. Free soilers attempted to take California. Um, the Democrats were shattered and didn't elect a president for 28 years. A new Republican Party of everyone else left formed with nobody south of Maryland involved. A civil war, one might say, was a brewing. Sorry, I'm just making sure that I can have... Okay, yep, alright, we're fine. Um, chapter 19. In 1852, Harriet Beecher published Uncle Tom's Cabin, A Reaction to Southern Slavery, and the Fugitive Slave Law. Um, this book was vastly, vastly popular, like crazy, absurd, like millions, hundreds, billions of copies signed. Uh, That might have been hyperbolic, hyperbolic. Um, what's going on? Okay, sorry, my computer, that was me improvising, but my computer's frozen. Come on. Okay. Um, millions of copies are published. It's not loathed that they claimed it was inaccurate. Well, youth in England, France, and the North all read it and were inspired to join the abolitionist movement. Um, Hinton R. Halper in 1857 wrote the book The Impending Crisis of the South. Um, he was a poor white that hated both slaves and slavery, but also knew that poor whites were the most disadvantaged thanks to the system of slavery. Poor whites kind of read it, didn't care, but rich white slaveholders noticed. In the North, the Republicans spread it around as campaign literature. Over in Kansas, newcomers looking for land, some of whom were financed by abolitionists like New England, possibly Nebraska, and I think, maybe, I don't know. Uh, someone emigrant aid entered the area, as did some armed southerners with slaves. Just New England, yep, New England emigrant aid, I wrote N-E. Um... I did some armed southerners with slaves, but never slavery in that area never really gained popularity due to the fact that it was a pretty volatile environment to take one's slaves to. 
1855, pro-slave border ruffians from Missouri came in, voting multiple times and installing a pro-slave government in Shawnee, while another anti-slave government sprang up in Topeka. This led to a phenomenon known as Bleeding Kansas, where John Brown came from Ohio and led his men to Potawatomi Creek and killed some Southerners. This hurt the free soil cause, but overall the war turned into a civil war in 1856, and in 1857, Kansas applied for statehood with the Lecompton Constitution, which was a vote for no slavery, but slaveholders would be protected and could keep their slaves. Free soilers boycotted the vote, um, but when Buchanan took over later, Kansas ended up doing a popular vote at the behest of him, um, at the behest of Douglas, in which the free soilers stood against the Lecompton Constitution, and the Douglas Democrats split from the South. Um, leading only sectional parties both in the state and nationwide. In the Senate, Charles Sumner, a senator from Massachusetts who's a stringent abolitionist, spoke against the crime against Kansas, um, condemning pro-slavery senators, South Carolina, and insulting Andrew Butler, a beloved South Carolinian senator. A South Carolinian congressman, Preston Books, beat Sumner with a cane, eventually ending his life due to the complications. Brooks resigned and was re-elected, and Sumner was also re-elected. Everyone was angry. In 1856, the Democrats nominated James Buchanan on popular sovereignty. Um, he had nothing to do with Kansas, while the Republicans nominated Captain John Fremont, who ran on free soil. The know-nothings, the American Party, ran on anti-foreignism and nominated Millard Fillmore. Fremont had some questions about Roman Catholicism, so Buchanan lost the popular vote and won the electoral vote with some help from Fillmore. Had Fremont won, it's quite possible the South would have seceded, so it just wasn't the right time. There wasn't enough sentiment for it on either side. Um, then, on the second day of the Buchanan administration, a huge bombshell dropped. Dred Scott versus Stanford, Sanford, par par pardon me, Jesus Christ, um, stated that a slave, Dred Scott, who was taken to Illinois and Wisconsin, free skates, free, free skate, everyone on the ice, um, free states against his will, and sued for his own freedom, which ruled against because slaves aren't allowed to sue the government. Chief Justice Robert Taney then went absolutely wild as a pro-Southerner, trying to permanently end the issue of slavery, stating that slaves were property and thusly were slaves everywhere, something that Congress could not change, meaning that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional from the start, and that Congress couldn't ban slavery even if all the states called for it. The South was elated, popular sovereignters, supporters of popular sovereignty were unhappy, the Democrats were split, the Republicans and the Free Soilers all ignored the ruling, prompting the South to ask, how can we share a union with them? Immediately after Dred Scott, the Panic of 1857, the product of California gold inflation, the Crimean War, grain overproduction, land speculation, and more exploded. 5,000 businesses collapsed as urban unemployment went up. The North hit hard as a chief producer of grain was worse off than the South, who was fine with their cotton. Um, thusly, Northerners and Republicans asked for free farms off the federal land the government was trying to sell. Industrialists and Southerners were unconcerned or unwilling, but eventually the government later passed the Homestead Act, a $25 an acre cost for government land. Additionally, the government passed the tariff of 1857 that lowered duties to 20%. Now Republicans had party lines, a tariff, and free farms. Um, the year is 1858 as Illinois prepared for a senatorial election. Abraham Lincoln, a state representative that married above himself, joined the Republicans and asked Douglas to debate him. Douglas said sure, stating, started strong until Abe posed the Freeport question. Does the Supreme Court decide on slavery or do the states? Which led to the Freeport Doctrine. Um, Douglas claimed the state was always prevailed because even if a state vote was struck down by the Supreme Court, you couldn't enforce a law people don't like. It was the idea of popular sovereignty in understandable writing. Douglas won, Lincoln came very close. Back to our old friend John Brown, who decided to invade West Virginia and call upon slaves to rise up and seize the arms they 
had uh, brought with them and create a free black state. Abolitionists funded the trip to Harper's Ferry um, where they seized Arsenal and then Robert E. Lee captured Brown. Brown was tried and convicted of murder and treason. He was treason, treason. He was martyrized before his death, courteous in his final days, South saw him as a murderer, North saw him as a martyr. Okay, back to politics. In 1860, the Democrats couldn't choose a nominee. Douglas was deemed a traitor for his acts in Kansas, so the Southern delegates walked out of the convention in Baltimore where they reconvened. The Douglas Democrats prevailed, and the Democratic platform was popular sovereignty. The Southern Democrats also convened nominating the Vice President, J.C. Breckinridge, who wanted to extend slavery to Cuba. The moderates created the Constitutional Union Party, a Whig and know-nothing combo, nominating Tennessee's John Bell. The Republicans in Chicago um, were thinking about W.H. Seward, but he was too radical, and they chose Abraham Lincoln instead, who had fewer enemies and ran on free soil, a tariff, immigration, a Pacific Railroad, internal improvement, and free farms. The South threatened secession if Lincoln won. But Lincoln was not even an abolitionist. In 1860, though, Lincoln won with 40% of the vote, even though he wasn't on the ballot in 10 states. It was basically two elections, one northern, one southern. Douglas came in second. Had the Democrats unified, they would have held a popular vote advantage over Lincoln, but they still couldn't have beaten him in the electoral vote. Immediately, South Carolina seceded, despite there not being a lot of disunionist sentiment and the fact that Southerners held the Supreme Court and Congress and the fact that Cong- Congress would have to change slavery on a constitutional level for them to really be worried about it. South Carolina nonetheless called a convention in Charleston where they all agreed to secede. John C. Crittenden, a Kentucky senator, attempted to save the Union with the Crittenden Amendment, saying that 3630 was the line forever, but the South would be preserved, and new states got to choose their status. Lincoln stopped the compromise as it would have opened the doors for Cuba um, to enter the Union as a slave state. Suddenly, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, and four others left and created the Confederate States of America at Montgomery with J.D. as their president. They had early momentum, but the North waited to fight because Lincoln wasn't in office yet, Buchanan was essentially senile, and if they attacked, they'd look like the aggressor while hopes for reconciliation remained. Secessionists legitimately thought the U.S. wouldn't mind, and they thought they could be independent economically, trade with the North, and they saw like similarity to the American Revolution. So the year is 1861, and Abe Lincoln is in office as president of the U.S. Seven states have seceded because of that, and eight more are threatening to. At his inauguration, he preached pacifism unless provoked, but did note geographically it made sense for the Union to remain together. Um, debt, territories, a failed fugitive slave lot, and the Underground Railroad, though, gave the South all the reason that they needed to secede, and Europe was more than happy to see the states divided. The Union held on, though, to some of its federal forts in the South, even after secession, with arsenals and mints present there. Two were left. Fort Sumter was the most consequential. When its provisions ran out in April of 1861, Lincoln faced a dilemma. If he sent reinforcements, a fight could start due to Sumter's close position to Charleston, um, but ultimately Lincoln chose federal land as a very important thing and sent provisions with troops and his Navy South to protect the South saw it war and South saw it as war and aggression. They opened fire on the fort, demanded surrender. From that moment on, the North was in the war and committed to the cause instead of its earlier rhetoric of, you know, the South can leave, let them leave peacefully. Um, in April 1861, 75,000 men were called as Virginia, called to service as Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina joined the South. The only slave states that remained in the Union were the border states, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. 
Um, had the North acted in aggression as the South would have framed it, these states would have almost certainly gone for the South and won them the war. They had held more than 50% of the white South with manufacturing, horses, mules. In West Virginia, opposite secession occurred as they broke off from Virginia to be a free territory. Uh, Lincoln needed it and Kentucky to hold the Ohio River. To hold all these territories, Lincoln had to step on a bunch of liberties. Troops and martial law entered the area where they oversaw elections, especially Maryland, um, because they needed D.C. attached to the Union. Union soldiers fought in Maryland and West Virginia for those ends. Lincoln posed the war as one for the Union, not for slavery. Um, for Native Americans, those who helped the Union got a raw deal, of course, because what else is new? All right, before we get into the war, let's go over what each side had and some of the circumstances. For the South, all they needed to do to win was to tie. They were playing defense. Excuse me. They had better morale, better officers, soldiers, a weird rebel yell, and this is key, fewer supplies. The North had the economy in its column. Oh boy, one sec. <clears throat> the North had the economy in its column, a really good harvest with more manufacturing, transport men, immigrants, many of whom were enlisting. The longer the Union held the South off, the better their chances got. If the South went quickly and got Europe on its side, they could have won. The South, in fact, was expecting this help, but the European working class kept public opinion on the side of the North. Thank Beaker and Breaker, Breacher and Uncle Tom's cabin there. What the South had been expecting, um, the South had been expecting to get Britain on their side due to a reliance on British on Southern cotton. But that was sort of an idea that went away when the country realized it had a cotton surplus. And by the time they didn't, the war was about slavery, so England couldn't really turn. So many people lost their jobs in England. The U.S., though, sent food that normally would have gone to the south um, to England. And India and Egypt picked up the cotton slack while Britain learned to manufacture warships for the south. Um, as for the leaders, Davis was at a disadvantage compared to Lincoln. He wanted a central government, but there was a precedent for secession, so he couldn't really enroach upon states' rights. State rights were bad for the Confederacy, and Davis didn't want them, so public opinion turned on him. As for Lincoln, he had a long-established, recognized, fiscally stable government, and he used public opinion really well. He wrangled the Constitution a little bit by blockading the South, increasing the size of the army, giving money randomly out to people, and suspending the writ of habeas corpus while defying the Supreme Court. Davis did not have that power. Both sides needed a lot of men. In the North, it was mainly volunteers at the start, until... Conscription began in 1863, which was unfair to poor people as rich people could pay not to serve. This led to Irish people and African Americans brawling in the New York draft riots. My computer's frozen again. Come on. Come on. All right, here we are. Um, bounty brokers went from poorhouse to poorhouse, enlisting people. Other people deserted or volunteered elsewhere. It was still a 90% volunteer army. In the South, it was also volunteers at the start, but they ran out of people quickly. Um, and in April 1862, conscription began with the rich, poor, and no slaves. Um, the North was better off financially and immediately put excise taxes on tobacco, alcohol, and established an income tax as well as the moral tariff that repealed the low 57 tariff and reverted to 1846 levels. And with the money that they raised, they protected manufacturers hurt by the tax and turned the Republicans into the tariff party. 
The Treasury issued greenbacks to keep the condition stable. That did not do that. The U.S. also established its first semblance of a national banking system based on greenbacks and bonds, $2 billion of which were issued, $2 billion worth of which were issued. In the South, customs went up as the blockade of the North increased in strength. They gave out $400 million bucks in bonds, and to the chagrin of Southerners raised the taxes by a lot, all of which devalued their currency into the basement. In this time, though, the North enjoyed absurd prosperity with its new tariffs, which uh, begat, begetted new factories and machines to save labor, helping business and raising prices. Um, think about, like, the sewing machine here. Suddenly, with extravagant profits, patriotism went up, and even as millionaires sort of made crummy gear. The economy expanded, custom clothing ended, and farm boys both fought and produced food using the profits for war materials. The country did. In 1859, petrol was found in Pennsylvania, leading to a bunch of 59ers, and to some extent, the 1862 Homestead Act. Women began taking over men's jobs during the war. In Europe, um, in 1861, the Union stopped a British ship, the Trent, with two Confederate diplomats on board. That pissed off the British, so they sent right coast to Canada. Everyone chilled out in the spirit of one war at a time. The British continued building warships, such as the Confederate Alabama, which got through the loophole of an earlier agreement, saying that the British couldn't build a Confederate's warships because that turned England into a Confederate port. Um, eventually, they called it quits. They took back the boats. They built an attempt to remain neutral and feared the United States making a play for Canada, which became a real possibility when the Laird Rams, two Confederate warships built at a British shipyard, uh, were dangerous to the, US, to the U.S. and far superior to Union ships were built. Lyndon bought the ships back and quickly paid the U.S. for previous damage. Southerners that had been attempting to go through Canada to attack the U.S. were held off by Irish armies who hated the British. By the end, the U.S. and Canada were working together as Canada was a nation in 1867, held together for the unlikely event of an American attack. Eventually, the Union was going to exhaust the South economically, devastate them and their transport infrastructure and their percentage of the national wealth, which went down to 12% and their GDP per capita. Um, was two-thirds of what it was before the war. Luxury died, and industry in the North alone showing the closeness, or rather the near proximity of the Industrial Revolution in the coming decades. All right, chapter 21. This is the last chapter in this episode. The war got started in earnest when Lincoln sent troops onto Richmond with 30,000 in tow. They were not ready. Ever met at Manassas Junction, also known as Bolt Run, 30 miles southwest of D.C., Stonewall Jackson held off the Union forces, and everyone had a picnic afterwards. The South was overconfident, and everyone thought the war was over, or, on the other hand, could take a really long time if you were the North. After the Union, General McClellan launched a sea campaign to attempt to take Richmond and was foiled. This was the failed Peninsula Campaign. It ensured the war was going to have to become about slavery, because the Union wasn't going to regrab the Confederacy so easily, so people were going to have to take a minute to think about it. The Union's blockade on the South was improving slowly. They concentrated on ports and inlets. The British let it happen so they could do it something similar in the future because of the precedent. There was some profit, though, in breaking the blockade as breakers got crazy money. Um, the Union cut them off eventually and seized British blockade runners. Um, the Confederacy then resurrected the Merrimack, renamed the Virginia, an ironclad that destroyed wooden ships. So then the Union built the Monitor that fought the Mac, and then the Confederates destroyed it to keep it from the Union. Abolitionists, oh my god, abolitionists were antsy at this point because Lincoln had done nothing to free any slaves, but he needed a win to do it. As Lee moved north, he encountered James Pope, the latest Union general, at the Second Battle of Bull Run, and Lee attacked and won, heading towards Maryland, thinking that the Europeans were going to show up any day. It all converged on Antietam Creek in Maryland, in which McClellan, who lost control after the failed Peninsula, Peninsula campaign, 
got control again and stumbled upon the plans of Lee, uh, stopping him in a bloody draw that sent the Southerners back south. McClellan chose not to pursue them and lost his job, despite the fact that if the South had won that battle, um, Europe would have to have come in to mediate and the North would have fought back, causing them to enter the side on the side of the Confederacy. Um, instead, Lincoln on the winning team issued the Emancipation Proclamation from D.C. South in September 1862, freeing all the slaves in the South, but it really only freed slaves for the Union Army. With the proclamation, more slaves were free, but it didn't really do much to them because they were still stuck in the Confederacy. Some fled to the Union, but the North weighed the... Jesus Christ. The North made the war a more moral problem. The 13th Amendment would eventually end slavery, meaning that it would be a fight to the bitter end. Those who had volunteered for the Union, not slavery, were kind of ticked, and at the midterms, the Democrats got huge gains. Lincoln did not enlist slaves in his army at the start, but as he lost men, he asked about 180,000 um, people to join, some in black regiments like the Frederick Douglass Massachusetts Regiment. Other slaves worked as spies and guides, and overall black soldiers picked up 22 medals of honor and a whopping 38,000 deaths. The South would not recognize them as war prisoners until 1864. They saw them as runaways at Fort Pillow, where blacks were killed after surrender. Things got more intense. The Confederates did not allow African Americans into their army until one month until the end of the war, where they forced tens of thousands into labor battalions um, and farms. Many did what they could to stop the Confederacy by slowing their work as much as possible. After Antietam, General Burnside also known as Sideburns, uh, replaced McClellan and attempted to attack the Confederacy on their strong line. Um, Hooker then took over, and at Chancellorville, Lee divided his army, sending Stonewall Jackson to attack. Hooker lost and was hit by a cannon, but also ended up killing Jackson, although Jackson might have died in friendly fire. Meade took over for the injured Hooker, and um, Lee decided to go north via Pennsylvania, hoping that a win would lead to more calls for peace from the north. Meade took a stand upon a random low ridge next to Gettysburg, where 92,000 Union soldiers fought 76,000 Confederates in July 1863. Pickett led a charge, the Confederates lost, and that ended their northern march. It was the furthest north they would reach. They sent a peace delegation to the federally held at Norfolk, which was actually a group of men that was supposed to converge with returning forces after a win of Gettysburg, but Lincoln wouldn't even let them in the door and doomed the southern cause. On the bright side, we got the Gettysburg Address. Out west, Ulysses Grant was turning heads at Fort Henry, Fort Donelson, and other places in Tennessee where he demanded unconditional surrender. He also attempted to capture the Four Points Junction of the Confederate Railroad at Corinth, Mississippi. He held the Kentuckians to the Union and opened the gate to Georgia and Tennessee. Eventually, the Union seized New Orleans uh, and came close to getting the Mississippi, unlocking the back door to the Confederacy. The South, who had been getting provisions and cattle from Louisiana and Texas, um lost their flow points of Vicksburg, Mississippi, and Port Hudson, Louisiana. Grant had attacked Vicksburg, and Hudson fell and within days, meaning that the Mississippi Mississippi was Union property. Um, it came one day after Gettysburg, so Unioners were pumped, and it helped out the Old Northwest, who hadn't been able to use the river for a while. Europe also stopped t even thinking about touching the Confederacy. Grant then went to Chattanooga, laid siege to eastern Tennessee, liberated slaves, and opened the door for a Georgian invasion. William Sherman then started the path to Savannah, destroying everything in his path, burning buildings, destroying railroads, and hurting Cesar's supplies, morale, and troop numbers on Sherman's march, which eventually took Atlanta in 1864. It was total war. It saved lives. It went overboard. In 1864, the real-time presidential election took place. There was some infighting pardon me, in the North where abolitionists were unhappy with Lincoln. Solomon Chase, Treasury Secretary, was a noted person like this. The Congressional Committee on Conduct of War was also established. Um, 
everything was split with the Democrats. The war Democrats supported Abe's. The peace Democrats um, said no, they were the copperheads. Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana were anti-Lincoln, drafted emancipation. Clement Vallon called for the end of war, was convicted of treason, and ended up in some weird situations. Lincoln, in need of Republican support to stop the copperheads, joined with the war Democrats for the Union Party running with Andrew Johnson, sewing up the party. The Democrats nominated McClellan on the promise around the premise of a failed war, but a string of Union victories and returning voting soldiers won the election for Lincoln. Any Southern hope for reconciliation was gone. Grant took over for Meade, promising to chase Lee, going at all factions at once so the South couldn't sort of help itself. He led battles that moved towards Virginia, or towards Richmond, that took a lot of the summer and led to about 50,000 casualties. It was basically a suicide mission. 77,000 people died at Cold Harbor alone, but the South was losing men in proportion. Um, people didn't like Grant, and then Lee made it a trench fight, so he started losing fewer men, so basically one for every two the Union lost. In February of 1865, the Confederates asked for peace, and Lincoln told them that they had to emancipate every slave, so they waited until the North captured Richmond and cornered Lee at Appomattox. Um, on April 9th, Lee and Grant met, and they signed a treaty saying the Confederates would rejoin the Union, keep their horses, and start the process of answering the question, how do you come back from this? Lincoln sat at Davis's desk before speaking with former slaves and going to a night at the theater where he died a martyr with any problematic aspects of his personality forgotten. The South soon realized that whoever came next would be harsher. Johnson took over and was impeached for not being harsh enough, though not removed. The U.S. lost 600,000 men, 2% of its population, more than World War II in proportion. A generation of young men and children were lost and pension problems were created. There would never be nullification and secession again. Democracy had survived at the very brink. England soon followed suit with the Reform Bill of 1867, ending slavery. African Americans then stepped into a system that was designed for them to fail, beginning a centuries-long crusade that started with the death of Western slavery, and the United States turned its attention to dominating the world. That's where we're going to draw the line for this first podcast, which, if anyone was counting, was about 22,000 words, which is... um, a few, one might say. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get a second one off, just because um, it's longer than this one, and we're here on Sunday, and I don't know. We'll see. I'll do my very best. Until then, though, it's a departure here on Pushing the A. I'll see you shortly for the rest of American history.